Welcome back to MetaStation after our somewhat planned and somewhat inadvertent hiatus. We're very happy to be back. Woohoo! Uh, I'm Claire. I'm a 35-year-old writer in Portland, Oregon. And this is the first time that I get to say how old I am since I've had my birthday. <laughs> so now I'm in Indian demographic bracket and it's very exciting. I'm 35 now. <laughs> and I'm tired. <laughs> At last, you're older than me again. So I'm no longer going to be confused by you saying yes. your age. We've closed the window. <laughs> we are different ages. Whew, it's a weird three months. Who am I? I'm Erin. <laughs> <laughs> I always forget who I am when we do these introductions. Uh, but I'm but I'm Aaron, I think, is what I recall about myself. And I also seem to recall that I'm in the state of Mississippi and that I'm an English professor and that I am 34 years old. And what else? There's a giant fucking spider in this room somewhere and it's freaking me out because it came out and then went away and then it came out again and now I don't know where it went and I'm terrified. Aaron has been at war with this same spider since we started recording this three hours and 45 minutes ago, and I'm genuinely concerned for her well-being. Important context for everything that happens in this podcast is that whenever I'm talking, I am also low-key terrified that there's going to be a silver dollar-sized spider on my body. And she texted me a picture of this, like, literally, like, while we were in the middle of a conversation, and I was like, okay, yes, holy shit. But we kept going. If anybody can pinpoint... The spot in the conversation where that text exchange <laughs> happened, I will give you $50 because we did not miss a fucking beat. We are pros. I was like imagining burning down my entire house and salting the earth in order to get rid of the spider. But I just kept on talking about the Blake siblings. Not all heroes wear capes. <laughs> so um, as we said last time or two times ago, you know, we, we record these at the very end, which is why we're super loopy when we do the introductions. <laughs> but now that this is all this nonsense is out of the way, we will get down to business. And business is talking about his sister's keeper. The bulk of this episode really focuses around Bellamy and Octavia and the introduction of Lincoln and nearly every other character is subordinate to that or is involved in moving that storyline forward. The only other thing that's sort of a self-contained chunk that we're going to try to get out of the way <laughs> quickly so we can move on from it is that we do get some really key movement forward in the Finn, Clark, Raven love triangle with Raven, who is no dummy, finally sort of beginning to put the pieces together as she and Clark end up back in the bunker and she sees the little deer statue thing, you know, and puts the pieces together in, in pretty short order. And then she and Clark kind of have it out about Finn being a garbage person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to be like, every time we have to go back to Finn for the rest of the season, I think we're just going to be like more and more disgruntled about it. <laughs> I've abandoned all pretense of anything resembling journalistic integrity. Okay, okay. But this week, I might kind of actually almost have something to say in Finn's defense. Kind of. Sort of. So when it when it comes up, I'll say what it is. And and it doesn't mean that I still don't think that he is a garbage person who needs to be kicked off the island. But but I, I can play devil's advocate this time. A little bit. In Finn's defense. This was the first time in a while I feel like they made an effort to give him a reason to be involved in the plot in a way that didn't involve Clark and Raven. Yes, that's true. You know, he, he was necessary because of skills that he has that were established early on that nobody else has, which is that he's a really good tracker. Which is why Bellamy is like, you know, he's got to come with me. 
That combined with Raven's line that she delivers a little bit when she's kind of poking at Clark when they're in the bunker and she talks about when Clark is like, oh, yeah, we saw this two headed deer and Finn made a little metal thing of it. And then she says like, oh, that's Finn, you know, like always finding beauty in the unexpected. So I was watching this episode thinking like the better Finn that we could have had, there's glimmers of him in this episode. A Finn who can make a substantive contribution to the hunt for Octavia because of things that are specific to him. He's a person who sees things that not everybody can see. And so there's kind of like a hope and faith and optimism in people that could play really nicely into the hardcore pacifist strain that he developed planting earlier like this is exactly the kind of person who would always just sort of relentlessly believe that peace is possible that's not fleshed out in a satisfying way. So like it almost made me more annoyed. I will quote our Twitter DM conversation that we were having while we were rewatching this just now, because this made me laugh really loud, where you quoted finds the beauty in the unexpected and then said, that sure would have been a nice character trait to see, which basically sums it up. You know, it's like, okay. So like if that's who he is to Raven, and I guess the fact that he would make that little figurine of the hideous two-headed deer is kind of evidence of that it's just like it's not consistent it's like one of a whole bunch of different fin traits that all get kind of thrown around and it doesn't feel like any one of them is pursued with enough consistency to really you know when somebody says a line like that make it believable to be like oh yeah yeah that that accurately sums up fin and also in this episode in particular those little glimmers of depth and interest pale in comparison to the unbelievably terrible way that he treats both Clark and Raven. Yeah. I'm less disposed than ever, like in the context of their storyline as a whole, to grant him any kind of, oh, I'm interested in learning more about this character because he's the worst possible version of guy in center of love triangle, just desperately trying to have it both ways. Well, and I think it's not even that he's trying to have it both ways. I mean, this, I think this is the thing that drives me crazy. It's always driven me crazy. But I remember way back when I was first watching the show and I was talking to some people about it. And I was talking about how much I always just like despise his character. Like I never really liked him, but I think this was actually one of the first episodes where my dislike went from, Meh, I kind of, you know, I'm not really like invested in that character, actually actively disliking him. And it was because of the thing where you know, I don't know that he's really trying to have it both ways. I wouldn't say that Finn is attempting to string both girls along. Like he's intending to sort of keep them both on the line for as long as possible sort of thing. I don't think that's what he's trying to do. The problem isn't that he's like a total dog. The problem to me that this is the thing that like makes me crazy is that he knows, he is 100% aware that his feelings for Clark are stronger than his feelings for Raven. And he knows that he has a responsibility to tell Raven both what happened with Clark and also what he's feeling right now. He knows that. He is consciously aware. And you can tell from, you know, like, he told Raven that they needed to talk about something. You know, like, there's all these little hints that make it very, very clear that he is entirely aware of what his ethical responsibility is to Raven and to Clark in this situation. And it's not that he won't do it because he doesn't care about being ethical. He won't do it because he's a fucking chicken shit. That's his problem. 
He's more concerned about how uncomfortable the conversation is going to be for him and how he's going to have to be the bad guy than he is about trying to do the right thing to allow Raven in particular to make her own choices. So that's like the most negative interpretation of Finn there is that he's just a coward, that he knows what the right thing is to do and he's not doing it because it makes him uncomfortable and because it's easier for him to just sort of omit the truth and let things kind of skate along and to put off telling Raven until he knows what's happening with Clark. And for me, this is just, this is one of my biggest pet peeves. This is something I just cannot stand. Like if if Finn was my boyfriend or whatever, and he explained, tried to explain to me later, I was just like, it was just really hard. Like that's the thing that I have a hard time forgiving in a person. I'm like, if you know what the right thing is to do, then you do it, you know? And like the fact that it makes you uncomfortable, you don't want to, isn't a sufficient excuse. So here's the alternate interpretation of Finn, that this is a more generous one that occurred to me while I was watching. And it's occurred to me before. When I first was watching, you know, like this is where I kind of started to dislike Finn. And I remember getting into debates a couple of times with people that I had talked into starting to watch the show who did like Finn, you know, who were a little bit more on his side. And, And their point was basically more like he's in a difficult situation. He doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And so it's really hard for him. So they so they framed it more as being motivated by concern and by his genuine care for Raven. Which I think is partly the case. I mean, I think he does truly care about her. But I mean, I think one of the things that, that's interesting, like the little, the little tidbit that we get dropped from Raven about their background, which is that Raven's mother was basically like AWOL, right? You know, like she didn't care about Raven. She didn't take care of her. She sold her rations for booze and so on. And that the only reason that she survived was because of Finn, because Finn took care of her. You know, Finn is her whole, is her family, her whole world. It's one of those statements where, like, you know, obviously it it helps explain Finn and Raven's relationship. It explains Raven's attachment to him and why, after she's figured it out, she would kind of, like, cling to him and stick with him. It gives us another little, like, window into life on the arc for people who aren't, you know, like Clark and Wells. It sort of chimes thematically with some of the Blake family stuff that we saw in terms of just The ways that ARC families can be warped by the system on the ARC and the ways that children can be made to suffer. But the other thing that occurred to me is that if you think about it from Finn's perspective, so imagine that in this episode, in addition to Bellamy flashbacks to when he was a little kid, we got flashbacks to, you know, little boy Finn finding little girl Raven and finding out that she was starving and sharing his food, finding out that the, he was the only source of food that she had, right? There's a degree to which you could imagine or sort of headcanon that Finn's relationship to Raven is somewhat closer to Bellamy's to Octavia than anything else in that from a very young age, he's had this really intense and for a kid kind of inappropriate level of or feeling of responsibility for her. And that it's a feeling of responsibility that once he had taken it on, even though he, for him, you know, he in this scenario, Finn took it on voluntarily, right? This wasn't the same as Bellamy and, and Octavia quite. But once he took it on, it was something that he couldn't refuse. You know, so like Raven was his. 
from the time he was very young. And he never, no matter who he became later or how he came to feel about her or anything, she was always going to be his and he never got to say no to that. So if you think about it that way, that maybe for Finn, this relationship had long ago become something that it wasn't for Raven, you know, for him, maybe, maybe he was chafing against it. Maybe he, he knew that he didn't love her like that, or, or he wanted to explore, I mean, anything, I don't know, he's 17, you know, but he never could because he knew that Raven's life literally depended on him. It's like a very codependent relationship. He could never escape until he made it to the ground. And then suddenly she's gone and he's free. And that's like really fucked up. You know, it's really awful for Raven, but also awful for Finn. And so if I think about it that way, if I think about Finn as like a kid who was sort of trapped in a relationship that he didn't know how or he couldn't get out of, he didn't really intend to become what it became. And then he just like was a dumbass when he hit the ground and was like, this is my chance to like play around. And then thinking that he was never going to see her again. And then she shows up and then he, he has a lifetime of never being able to bring himself of feeling like refusing Raven is the same as condemning her to death. You know, it does make it a lot more complicated than just like, he's a coward who should nut the fuck up and be honest, which I still think he's a coward who should nut the fuck up and be honest. But yeah, no, this is interesting. I'm very intrigued by this headcanon. And over the course of everything that you just said, you have now completely convinced me. Because (laughs) so when you first started explaining that, I was thinking, okay, that fits really, really well with the picture of their history we're given post Spacewalker retcon where we see him take the fall for her. But it doesn't feel like it fits with the season one Finn where we're meant to believe that he's the one that's actually really reckless. But actually, like, it kind of does. Right, because theoretically he's never been able to be reckless. You know, it's almost like in a weird way, it's like he's like a guy that got married too young to the first girl that he ever dated. And then that ends or something happens. And then it's just sort of like, I'm going to just be stupid because I can Or like if he feels in some way like he's trapped in this relationship with Raven where he's a caretaker and that sort of is subsuming whole chunks of his identity, then the idea that like there's moments where he's just totally careless and irresponsible because he's just like a dumb 17 year old kid with all of the rebel instincts of every dumb 17 year old kid, but like no healthy outlet for them because he also is like having to parent Raven a little bit. This is where it's not quite the same as Bellamy and Octavia, I guess, because he's not her parent. He's more like a sibling. So I think like it's less like her literal survival than that she's like maybe keenly aware that he is her like emotional survival. I think a point in favor of that being at least partially their intention is that this is the episode in which we learn that. Yeah. Like that it is directly juxtaposed opposite our first real look at a kid serving as a caretaker for another kid and being prevented from having the opportunity to be a kid himself. But I think what's really sad about that interpretation of the Finn and Raven relationship is that that puts Finn in the position of being the only person who really can't see how tough and capable and self-sufficient Raven is because he sees her still as somebody who needs protecting and and what a disservice that does to who she is as a person who has this tremendous capacity for 
endurance and survival and who becomes so immediately like integral to everything happening on the ground. I'm interested in the interpretation that he's both the person who is closest to her and the person who sees her the least accurately, because that's also kind of how the Blakes are with each other. They're so intimately entangled that they have no distance. You know, like there's things about Bellamy that only Clark can see because Octavia is too close. Yeah. And there's things about Octavia that like Lincoln sees first or that Kane sees first or Indra sees that Bellamy doesn't get there right Again, away. Like her toughness. That Octavia is perfectly capable of getting herself out of that cage. That's something that Bellamy can't see because he can't see past her being, you know, this little girl that he has to shield from harm. He can't get past that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true of Finn, that he he's the one who understands Raven the least in a lot of ways. I mean, he doesn't see her, you know, like I, he sees a, maybe a younger version of her. We, it's harder to tell, of course, because we never get to see as much. But I, I would say this. I do think that's also kind of established more as just a trait of Finn's full stop. Because you could also say, arguably, that same kind of issue is at stake in season two when Finn goes berserk over Clark's watch and kills the Grounder Village because of that. And I think the flashbacks in 208 and the way that they juxtapose that also supports that. The idea that, you know, Finn is and always has been someone who sort of devotes himself to the people that he loves wholeheartedly is the good side, but recklessly on the other side. So, you know, on the one hand, he will, you know, make it so that Raven can live her dream. But on the other hand, in so doing, he wastes a month of, month of oxygen. He gets himself, you know, arrested and thrown in the skybox. And then the same thing with Clark. When you're talking about, like, he can't see Raven's toughness, her ability to take care of herself. Finn also, despite having, you know, seen Clark defend herself and take care of herself for all of season one, is sort of convinced in season two that she's this damsel in distress that he has to go rescue. Part of it is it seems to be a kind of, <laughs> to go back to my Finn-hating ways, he has this kind of like narcissistic imagination of himself as being a sort of Prince Charming kind of rescuer. And maybe some of that is because of Raven. If you're right in this interpretation of sort of the Raven and Finn origin story, I think that that explains a lot. But he has that sort of like nice guy, chivalrous misogyny thing happening as kind of the real running connective thread through both his relationships with both of those women in a way that is impossible to root for <laughs> him ending up with either of them. What I was saying before about like, you know, him wanting to have it both ways. I do I do think you're right that it, it isn't like he's stringing them both along, like in the hopes of continuing to be like in a secret relationship with both of them. But he wants to seem to himself like a nice yes, guy. Exactly, exactly. The charitable interpretation is that he's desperate to do anything to avoid hurting Raven and it makes him make dumb mistakes. Yeah. The interpretation that I find myself watching it with is like you just don't want to get in trouble 
and you don't want to have your image of yourself as a good guy dented and tarnished by having to come to terms with the fact that you did something really bad and the narrative that you wrote for yourself about how it wasn't that bad because he thought he would never see Raven again or they thought everyone in the arc was dying which we talked about before like that that's not really the information everyone's working off of at that point in the story like they're still all convinced the arc's gonna come to earth but when Raven says he could have waited longer than 10 days there's no getting around that fact that's non-negotiable yeah and I think that the fact that they lampshaded that you know the fact that they had Raven say that I think actually both interpretations are true and in play, at least to some extent, that part of his motivation is genuinely like aversion to hurting people that he cares about, but carried to an extent where he's sort of unable to understand that that impulse is wrong, you know, and that it's actually more hurtful. And also he's not really capable of perceiving that part of what he's doing is trying to protect his own self-image. But yeah, I don't think they would have had Raven say he could have waited more than 10 days if that wasn't meant to signal to you that there's more going on with this than just he really, truly, genuinely thought that she was gone forever. That's maybe a teeny little piece of it, but that wasn't it. And then also the sort of suggestion over and over that he gives Clark that his feelings for her are not just like, I thought my girlfriend was gone forever and now she's not. You know, I think that's also versus Clark's reaction of I hardly know him. You know, I think that's also deliberately meant to kind of, well, it's hard to say because Because they do later on, you know, have her say that he broke her heart and blah, blah, blah. So it's like a little inconsistent. But I think it is meant to sort of like contrast and sort of say like there's Finn's version of what happened and that doesn't really match what actually is going on, which is that it's really been a very short period of time and he should know better. He should at least know better than to, you know, not come clean when Clark knows That's the thing that really drives me crazy. I I think that's the worst thing to me. In addition to his cowardice and not coming clean with Raven, it's also the fact that by not coming clean with Raven, he's forcing Clark to lie too. And he's not of any concern for her or he doesn't speak to her. He doesn't give her any choice in it. And then he wants to talk to her about their relationship when Clark knows that he hasn't talked to her. You know, so he like, he makes Clark complicit in his cheating and his lies. And he doesn't really seem to have any awareness that in doing so, he's doing something wrong to Clark. That just, like, drives me crazy. One of the first things that I, when I was first watching the show, that genuinely grabbed me as being completely unexpected and running totally counter to sort of expected TV trope storyline is how the women in this love triangle are written both in this episode and going forward, they set it up in a way where you feel like, you know, exactly how this is going to play out. It's going to pit these two women against each other. And it's going to be like Finn sort of dithering about which one he ends Mm -hmm. up with. And then all of the important work they have to do is going to be like sabotaged by cat Mm -hmm. fighting. Like the story beats are so conventional that like no one ever deviates from them. And then to totally upend that by giving them this sizzling with electrical tension scene between the two of them when everything kind of finally comes out. When Clark says that she didn't know about Raven, you see what a gut punch that is to Raven that like Finn didn't mention that he had a a girlfriend who loved him who was still up on the arc. But it shifts the entire thing to where from that point on, both of them are like correctly placing the blame where it actually belongs, which is solely on Finn, who's the only person who broke any kind of vow. 
Clark had no idea Raven existed. And the second that she realizes, she shuts that shit down. Like, immediately, unapologetically, she doesn't engage with him. She doesn't take his bait. She doesn't, like, sneak off to go have feelings-y conversations. No, she's like, you have a girlfriend. That was fun, but that's it. Yeah. And he was like, is it really? And she's like, yeah. He forces her to be complicit in the lying, but she doesn't let him off the hook for that. No. Her fury at Finn for how she's gotten sucked into this thing where she didn't do anything wrong because she needs Raven. She already can see how important Raven is and doesn't want to be in a position where she and Raven are at odds because they need each other. It makes the best out of my least favorite season one storyline. You know, like, I still don't like the love triangle. I don't like that it exists. All my issues with Finn remain present. (laughs) But they do write by Clark as the, like, other woman. They do justice to her as a person and they let her stay out of all of those sort of really gross anti-feminist woman versus woman kind of tropey traps that love triangles with two girls fighting over one guy fall into because like they don't ever fight over Finn. Yeah. Like they're both pissed at him and things are really, really, really uncomfortable. But like no one's throwing a drink in the other woman's face and pulling her hair. Like they're just like, all right, well. This is a really shitty situation, but also it's it's not the top of anyone's list of priorities right now while we are being attacked by grounders. I was so relieved the first time I watched when, you know, because we were all expecting it to go that cliched way when it sort of swerved. I was like so impressed yeah. and relieved and like I, I never expected them to get to Clark and Raven, like Raven knowing about it at all by the end of this episode. I I thought it was going to drag on longer. So the fact that she knew about it, let alone like Clark and Raven having a conversation about it, like the fact that they sort of resolved that issue in one episode to shift the issue back to, this is an issue of Finn's and Raven's relationship. It really has nothing to do with Clark. They do a really good job in that scene with Clark and Raven, allowing Raven to have her anger with Clark, which is understandable. You know, like Finn is her person and and he's the person that she loves. So it is natural for your anger to be directed at that other person first, because it's easier to hate the other person than to hate the person that you love, right? You know, it's easier to blame them than to kind of like admit to yourself that you've been betrayed. And so I'm glad that they gave Raven that sort of moment to be angry at Clark and to confront her, you know, with a kind of like, tell me you're not screwing my boyfriend thing. But it's great the way that they turn that around by having Clark be honest, you know, so Clark doesn't get defensive. Clark is just like, I can't tell you that it happened. I didn't know about you. Like you said, like you can see Raven is completely disarmed by that. You know, she has this anger and she's ready to have that sort of fight with Clark about it. She never expected Clark to say, yes, it happened, and I'm sorry, and I didn't know about you, and I wouldn't have done it if I had, which spins it right back around where it belongs onto Finn. And it's beautiful the way that Raven, because, you know, Raven's no dummy, right? Like, Raven's smart the way that she sort of immediately takes that to heart and takes that in. They do do a good job of, of sort of, like, subverting the whole thing, which is nice to see, although still not my favorite part of the show, but, you know... (laughs) One of the things that really kicks into super high gear in this episode with that scene in particular is laying the groundwork for this really wonderfully rich and complicated and continually unfolding Clark and Raven relationship. 
They go through this really beautiful arc of growing closer together and in some ways kind of trying to move past the Finn thing and becoming really dependent on each other and this incredibly profound respect that they have. And then in season two, when Finn dies, it rewinds all the way back to start and then they're sort of building back up again from the ground up. And that's one of the things I'm really interested in the rumblings and whisperings that we've been getting little bits at a time about season four make me hopeful that that relationship, which was non-existent in season three, <laughs> yeah. that will get some more of that really wonderfully messy dynamic that they have where there's like this incredibly profound respect and affection that's tainted by all this Finn stuff that is really hard to get past that they haven't been able to process really well. 106, in so many ways, it's a really, really painful episode to watch. But one of the scenes that just like makes me cringe (laughs) in like dramatic irony pain is when Raven and Clark are walking through the woods and, you know, Raven doesn't know anything is going on. And she's Raven, you know, she's like, she's so enthusiastic and she's so effusive. And part of the pain is that, you know, from Clark's perspective, we kind of understand like the friendlier Raven is and the the greater Raven is, the more guilty Clark feels about what happened with Finn. And also she brings up her mother, you know, she's like another kind of twist of the knife. But then the other part of it that's so hard is that you can imagine like without the Finn thing hanging over their heads, getting in the way, how quickly they could have become such great friends. Because like Raven immediately when when Clark's kind of when she's like, yeah, hurry up and save the world, just like your mom, you know, like you can see Raven being ready to sort of attach to Clark the way that she attached to Abby. Yeah. Raven's not a leader per se. She's the hands, right? She needs someone to tell her what problem she needs to solve. Right, right. She has a classic math and science brain where you put a problem in front of her and she will dive straight into solving it, but she doesn't go out there and find problems. Right, exactly. And so she has this kind of like automatic rapport and I think respect for people who are the ones who can sort of look around and be like, here's the problem that we need to solve. And and Clark steps in to that place that Abby had had up on the arc. And Raven's just like ready to love anybody who Abby loves, you know, Clark is this like shining beacon for her because she is this shining beacon for Abby. And so you can sort of imagine a world in which the whole Finn debacle hadn't happened where Raven came down and she and Clark were like inseparable BFFs immediately. Because I think Clark obviously can also immediately see how wonderful and exceptional and amazing Raven is. She just is sort of stymied by this guilt that she has. So part of like the pain of that scene is just like, ah, (laughs) in a different world. How wonderful this would be. I know. You know, I mean, I love this show because it doesn't make it easy on any of the characters that I like. Everyone's always sort of up against it. But it does like, yeah, it throws this iconic girl friendship up in front of you and then it's like haha just kidding <laughs> it's gonna be ruined by a boy and it's like oh. fucking Finn <laughs> on the other hand if there were no Finn Raven would never have come down there so that's really true yeah so I guess in a way we have Finn to thank for everything Raven related that we like but I do so very <laughs> grudgingly yes yes <laughs> well shall we move on to people that we do like let's do that <laughs> so we got the introduction of Lincoln Here's my opening question for this storyline. And like, maybe I'm either dumb and I miss this, or maybe this is something that comes out later. But like, why does he kidnap Octavia? I don't see this whole Lincoln thing in 106. It's just like one giant plot hole. 
I have so many questions. It's like holes on holes. If you could dig a hole and then dig a hole in the hole, that's kind of what's happening. You know, it's one of those things where like, when you first watch the episode, it seems to be deliberately mysterious. We don't know this this strange silent grounder man. And it clearly the first part is meant to be a misdirect. You know, it's from Octavia's perspective. And we're meant to believe that he means to do her harm and continually be surprised when he does things to heal her wound or save her life or save her brother right, or whatever. Right. And as far as we know so far, we know there are grounders. He sort of seems to confirm that they don't speak English or they're just like a completely different whatever. Like, that's all fine because it seems to be a kind of deliberate mystery that will be solved later. The problem is that it would make sense if Lincoln was like, there's a girl on the ground who's hurt and I don't know where she belongs and she's unconscious so she can't tell me. So I'll pick her up and take her back to my place and take care of her wounds. That would make sense. But then she tries to get away, which also makes sense. So then you think like, well, okay, maybe like he knows the woods are dangerous and booby traps. So maybe she tries to get away. He goes after her in order to save her from the booby traps. And then like now that she's awake, he can ask her where she belongs and he can take her home. That doesn't happen. She tries to run away. He goes after her. He like physically carries her back and then chains her up. So like there's these all these sort of repeated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things were like, whatever you think his, his motivation might be keeps being not his motivation, which again, that's fine when we're sort of still as an audience laboring under the idea that, all right, well, eventually we'll find out his motivation, but we never find out what his motivation was there. Okay. So that's what I was wondering because I haven't seen these in a long time and I kept thinking like, when do they explain why he took her? Because none of this makes any sense. Piggybacking off of what we talked about at the end of the last podcast, in this episode, they still very, very clearly appear to be setting up Jasper Octavia. Yeah. By Jasper being the only one of the delinquents who's also included in Octavia's flashback, which has to be deliberate. By Jasper facing his fears. You know, Clark saying, like, you've never gone outside the gates of the camp since you got kidnapped. And he's like, it's Octavia. I have to do this. Like, he's proving himself by going along with Octavia's brother to help save her. And then he's the one that knocks out Lincoln. Like, the plot beats of this episode are setting you up that Lincoln is a villain from whom Jasper helps rescue Octavia to further his sort of growing into a hero arc and their relationship in this kind of like nerd learns how to be hero and rescues hot girl kind of storyline, which like, don't get me wrong. I'm super, super glad they abandoned that. But I don't feel like this is a misdirect. I feel like, again, like they changed their mind. Yeah. And it's hard to tell. Like this episode feels like that's the storyline that it's advancing. But it can't be because 106 is like all setting up. Link and Octavia, so they would have had to totally reverse their plans in one episode. I know, but it, but I can't. I think like the Jasper Octavia stuff in here, I don't know. It must be a misdirect. What baffles me about this one is I feel like if the point of the way Lincoln's introduced and the sort of sinister villain, Beauty and the Beast framing that they give, if that's meant to be a misdirect, there's a way to execute every key plot beat of the Lincoln Octavia storyline in this episode where we never see him do anything to her that is actually 
violent or harmful. You know, like if he sees her in the field and like takes her back to like tend to her wounds and then we're seeing it all through her lens. So she perceives this as a kidnapping. And we know later from Anya that like a bunch of grounders died when the sky people landed. And so if they're perceived as being dangerous, is she tied up for his protection until he can kind of get a better read on her? And in the woods, when he like grabs her, is he saving her from another grounder? Like there's a way that he could do all the things we see him do, where then later when we know him better, we realize, oh, those things look scary and bad to Octavia. But to us, now that we know that Lincoln is a peaceful person, I can see, you know, Lincoln who blew the horn to scare the other grounders away, like that all the time he was doing these things that were more protective and kind and trying to help her. And they just looked scared because she was sort of primed to be scared of him. I think all about that is what they intended. So they deliberately set him up to look savage and threatening, both to us as an audience and also to the kids. And that was deliberate in order to be subverted by all these sort of like things that he does that turn out to be to protect her or to, you know, save Bellamy and the other rescue crew's lives and that kind of thing. I think all of that was deliberate. And I do think that they were deliberately setting up Lincoln and Octavia in this episode because they wrote 106 and 107 together because 106 goes directly into 107. Everything that happens in 107 was set up here. So it seems extremely unlikely to me that they finished 106 thinking Octavia was going to happen and then went, uh, oh, never mind. It's going to be Lincoln Octavia. I think that they knew exactly where this arc was going to go. The thing to me that, that makes it not work, all of that works in 106. When we believe that Lincoln cannot speak English, it falls apart completely right. Right, when right, we right. find yes. out that in fact, at any moment, if Lincoln had chosen to use his words and tell Octavia, hi, my name is Lincoln, here's what I'm trying to do, please cooperate with me, it all would have gone totally smoothly. And then later on, hi, my name is Lincoln, I look big and scary, but I saved your sister and here's why. Right, right. So, and it was never explained as why he doesn't ever speak. That's the big plot hole that makes the whole thing just, in retrospect, going back and rewatching from the beginning after finding out everything that we subsequently find out about Lincoln that just like makes zero sense whatsoever. He has to be silent in order for events to transpire the way that they do. He has to be silent in order for him to be misinterpreted. So that in 107, Bellamy can kidnap him so that they can then force this kind of like moral crisis, primarily for Bellamy, but also for Clark and everyone else to sort of force them into this moral crisis of at what point do you cross the line into actively going beyond self-defense to, you know, kidnap an enemy and torture them, which then leads into Bellamy's kind of reckoning and then his turnaround in 108. So Lincoln has to be silent through 106 and 107 in order for everyone else's storyline to proceed the way that they want it to proceed. But there is no other explanation for why he's silent, really, other than, well, if he talked, then the stuff we need to happen isn't going to happen. If they had no encounters with him while he was conscious in 106, I can totally buy him refusing to say anything under torture in 107. But it makes no sense that he wouldn't say anything to Octavia when they're alone in his cave. And he's like, hey, this flaming poker that I'm holding is not to stab you as we cut to commercial break. It's to cauterize your wound. 
Or when they're walking through the woods and she's trying to talk to him. Right. Yeah, he didn't have time to talk when he came back and found Bellamy and everybody in the cave because he was attacked right away. But all that time when he was walking through the woods carrying Octavia, there's no reason for him not to tell her what he's doing and why. Right, because any perception he could have had at that point that she might be dangerous to him, which makes some sense when he has her in the cave the first time. Yeah. Where it's like, it's plausible to a degree that they're sizing each other up. Like, that he's also not sure yeah. if she's dangerous. Right. Sure, that's fine. But yeah, but like when they're walking through the woods and she's like, my leg hurts. So he picks her up to carry her, which is some indication that like... He understands English. Or is like really good at body language. I don't know. (laughs) They have a little moment there where they're connecting on a human level. And that would be the time for him to be like, my name's Lincoln. And she'd be like, my name's Octavia. Let's talk like human beings since we both speak English. Because it's only been 97 years. You can't have forgotten anyway. (laughs) There's two things that complicate this storyline. One is him, for plot purposes, being required to be mute in this sort of noble, savagey kind of way that's real questionable. But the other big problem that makes it all seem real messy is the world building we've gotten up until this point in the story about who grounders are doesn't match the world that we're told later, like when we really, really get inside grounder culture in season two and we meet Lexa and we learn about the political alliances. Who the fuck are these guy in the woods? Right. Like what we're told about the commander and the role of the commander in sort of like grounder society. And I'm sure some of this is retcon, but like what we're told is that like Lexa has united all of the clans, including tree crew, and they're under her leadership. And yes, at this point in the story, they all think the Sky People are enemies. Like, we get that from Anya when we meet Anya later. It makes sense later in this season when the Grounders declare war on the Sky People, but these sort of fringe forest-dwelling wackos who just sort of jump through the trees and set traps, it sets them up as being motivated solely by violence and killing I think it's one of those things where, like, again, when you're watching it the first time and you haven't seen any of season two, you don't know where the grounders are going. You sort of accept it, partly because, like, we don't have any other contradictory information, and partly because on a kind of, like, genre level, the way that the grounders are operating at this point are as a kind of, like, unknown, quasi, almost supernatural horror film villain who pops up out of nowhere to deal out random bloody death to teenagers. And that's kind of been like the way that they've been operating in the show all along. So you're kind of like, okay, this is who the grounders are. And the dissonance only really comes later on when you go back and rewatch, like you were saying, after we've been sort of introduced to this world and to who these people are and like the supposed values of grounders, where you're like, these guys, you know, out in the woods with no villages, no nothing, with their booby traps at random spots in the trees and they're like bodies hung up to ward people off from who knows what. They make no sense in this world. Like we're sort of given this world of our of grounders that is a very highly hierarchical and feudalistic almost and very militarized in terms of valuing things like honor and duty and again, and like hierarchical chains of command. So... Guys running around the woods just, like, killing people for no reason, you know, just because they're there. All, like, all I can imagine is, like, are these the 14th clan that didn't get included in the treaty because they're just a bunch of, like, 
little shits who go around killing people for kicks. <laughs> my big question about that, initially my sense of it was that by and large, the clans are sorted by geography. So my assumption was always that Sky Crew landed in Tree Crew territory. Yeah. And we know Pharmacician landed in Nascada. But like then all of the grounders that they encounter geographically like around their location both in season one and season two are tree crew who are led by anya first and then later by indra under lexa who's also from them too so like tree crew would you would think be like extra loyal to the commander because she's from their tribe so my assumption is that we're meant to believe that all of these grounders that they're the clan we get to know really, really well. And yet they behave the way, again, for plot purposes, that you need the mysterious shadowy villain hiding in the trees and throwing spears to behave. But they don't behave like warriors. They behave like monsters. One of the really troubling tropes running through, it's worse in the first season, gets a little better in the second season. And then it's really, I think, when we get to Polis and see sort of the whole different side of him that it really sort of begins to flip. But the depiction of grounders that we get in season one paints them all as like yowling, spear-hurling savages. When you lay that side by side with the sort of colonialist overtones of the whole arc of the story is incredibly problematic. Well, and especially because, I mean, it's it's really even more underscored by the fact that the Sky People believe that they are going down to colonize a place that's empty and that their problems are sort of begin when they are confronted with the fact that this territory that they believed was empty and unowned actually already belongs rightfully to other people you know, whose existence they weren't aware of and whose, whose possession they sort of didn't grant. And that, if you go back and read ways that Europeans described particularly North America, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's a sort of imaginary projection of an empty space. So colonial space was a kind of empty space into which uh, sort of like excess elements of... European culture could go and from which they could extract resources to support themselves. So, like this is very literal in, in someone like John Locke. You know, if you read the second treatise on government, he has this whole thing about like a big chunk of his, uh, his sort of political theory having to do with property is built around this imaginary America, which is this sort of place that exists elsewhere, that has a kind of unlimited, unclaimed territory that makes possible a sort of political economic situation that can exist in England. But that's what he imagined. He imagines this big empty space, and he says, that's America. This is the imagination of colonial space that enabled European colonialism. And that's exactly what the sky people have about the earth. We have limited resources here, and we have political problems that are being produced by them, and our solution is that we're going to relocate to this big empty place. Oh, fuck, there are people here. <laughs> and that the people that are there are framed as savages, and that they are viewed as, like, an inconvenience to be eradicated by killing them. When we get shadows of this again, you know, and I know I can't have a whole Pike Apologism section when we're talking about season one, but we get little <laughs> flickers of this again in season three, where the show pushes that, that really murky, we need these resources more than you do, our lives are more important, like that kind of colonialist mentality and really letting that live. 
the real motivation for Pike doing what Pike did was like, look, we have no arable land. You have arable land. It's not personal, but we need your land because we're running out of food to survive. So I'm going to have to kill you. (laughs) And that very black and white colonialist mindset traces in a nice straight clean line back to the way is introduced in season one and it's only as we get to know the grounders and realize that they're not all terrible savages and we see from their point of view you know like when Anya talks about how many people died when the ship crashed which is a perspective that we don't get up until that point I like the idea that it introduces this colonialist narrative and then it lets us get to know the other side of it and we see the sort of terrible impact on these existing people who were just trying to live their lives when this guy people crashed down like that's narratively interesting to me but the fact that it takes so long for us to see the grounders as human beings who are not kind of cartoon character savages stereotypes like it takes a while for you to not be like oh my god this whole storyline is so racist i want to kind of throw up a little bit and the show continues to struggle with racist tropes and racist imagery a lot. I do think that it takes steps to sort of move past that kind of noble savages narrative. But man, in this episode, with the skeletons hanging in the trees and like the unnecessarily violent, stabby booby traps in the forest, they're setting something up that's really, really uncomfortable. I'm just like feeling a lot of stressed out feelings about how hard they push this narrative that the grounders are all tree dwelling murderers. And then they're like, JK, they're love interests and we love them. And they're like the stars. Well, of the I think another piece of it that that still complicates things, even when we get a more complicated vision of grounders later on, you know, when when we learn more about them and we learn they have a society that that exists beyond just like savages and trees or whatever. The contrast between the Ark and the Grounders is still kind of premised on an aesthetic in which the Grounder society is somehow at an earlier stage in history, albeit one that is perhaps more noble. Right. This is another classic colonialist thing. There's a theory called stadial history. By stadial, S-T-A-D-I-A-L, so like stages stadial history. And it's a theory of history that was developed in the 18th century in the Scottish Enlightenment. And it was a piece of the way that people kind of explained and justified colonialism to themselves. And the idea was that society sort of evolves through stages. And the stages kind of start with savagery and go through something like medieval kind of feudalism and then develop into something closer to, you know, modernity. So capitalism and trade and non-absolutist governments. So basically what it meant is that you could sort of go to another place like, say, North America or Africa or whatever and look around and look at the kind of, like, economy and government that that, that those people had and say not only is it, like, different from ours, but that they are, in fact, at an earlier stage of development. They are at a place in history that we have evolved beyond. And it might be a simpler time, a more noble time. They have a more, you know, sort of like rigid belief in honor, that kind of thing. It's not necessarily that that stage in history, that stage in development is entirely bad. It's not. And in fact, many noble things have to be shed in order to achieve the level of sophistication and civilization that Europeans had achieved. 
But even in the ways that that grounder society gets developed later on, there's still a sense that they are a regression that is moving back towards complexity, if that makes sense. Yeah. And part of it has to do with the kind of mythology of their their total lack of technology and the fear of technology. And that actually like could have been a way to make it feel story driven. Like if that, I feel like if that had been pushed harder, that's a way to explain in a way that is narratively necessary that doesn't feel like it's coming out of sort of unexamined racial tropes. Like if they, if they have this fear of technology where they, they have intentionally built a more primitive society because of this sort of like mythological, like anti-technology thing that was intentionally built, like hardwired into the mythos created for them by Becca. Yes, because she knew that that was the only way to to evade Allie. Yeah, if they had made that textual, that's what I expected and that's what I wanted. Because that explains everything in a way that works so well. And then they never quite went there. Yeah, no, they never went there. And I, and I think it was something that would have been... You know, I, I, I won't credit them with that without it being textual, you know, because I think it's really, really important to say, like, this is a thing that happened for a reason. This right. is a belief that was drilled into people for a reason. And it produced the society in this particular way, not just because, like, left to their own devices, they went savage, whereas the people up in the sky had this kind of, like, political apparatus of democracy and sort of technological apparatus that allows them to kind of believe a story about their own advancement, whether or not their behavior actually matches it. You can make an argument about a kind of like moral parity between the Ark and Grounders in terms of their actual behavior. But I think as an audience, we are meant more to believe, at least for the first two seasons, the story that the people on the Ark at least genuinely hold higher ideals and that you know like this is like abby you know like she's a person who's lived on the ark but she she holds these higher ideals clark is the same thing well so we have more characters who seem to question the status quo that's in a way that suggests that they have some somehow sort of like transcended or trying to transcend it or something like that and that that credit is not really given to the grounders certainly not in season one in season three a little bit but even then it's imputed really only to lexa and then also we find out later on like luna but luna has removed herself and everybody else is kind of like presented as being more or less lockstep and then there's this sort of fake out a little bit almost in the season three premiere where we get that one little glimpse of the ice nation guards before jasper shoots the guy where we see that they're not afraid to touch technology. Like, I remember us watching that and thinking, I wonder if this is going to open up a door to us understanding that actually one of the things that divides Ice Nation from the rest of the grounders is this different view of technology that then would, in hindsight, shed a bunch more light on this ideological dividing line between Lexa and Naya of whether technology is something to be used or to be feared and avoided. And then it just sort of never went anywhere. But at this point in the story, you know, when we have none of that information, we're looking at skulls nailed to trees and Lincoln not speaking English. Yeah, and the other piece of this, of course, too, is that as an audience, those are tropes that are traditionally deployed in order to code someone for us as being a kind of like savage and primitive in a particular way. 
And Lincoln obviously comes eventually to subvert that, but only in, him, in himself. You know, and we're also told later that Lincoln deliberately left his people because they did expect him to behave in that kind of violent way and that he's an exception. Yeah, everything we learn about Lincoln, everything he tells us about Grounders society sets us up to believe that what we thought Grounders were is what they are, or at least is what enough of them are that Lincoln is like ostracized from their society for not wanting to be a murderer. And if you think about the way that parallel acts of violence among the Arcadians are framed, you know, like the public shock lashing of Abby, you could sort of make a case for that's kind of public corporal punishment intended to enforce compliance with kind of the political social order, right? You could make a case that that is sort of of the same sort of category of things as like, you know, nailing skulls to trees or whatever. Using human bodies and suffering to sort of terrorize people into compliance. But the way that the shock lashing of Abby is framed, it's set up as being A, like inherently bad, B, a sign of like the sickness at the heart of the society that needs to be rooted out, and C, kind of the ultimate, you know, moral line for Cain. So it's still coding that kind of behavior as being quote unquote primitive or savage in a particular way. One of the lines that sort of recurs throughout the show in a number of different contexts is somebody proposes something violent or destructive and somebody else says, like, that's not what we do or that's yeah, not who we yeah. are. Clark says it. Kane says it. Like, Finn says it, I think. Like, it recurs multiple times throughout all three seasons in a number of different contexts that sort of hardwired to this picture you get of how the sky people see themselves. That's how you talk when you think that you are morally above violence. You know. Yeah, and then, of course, I think the counter to that is, of course, the other side of it, which is those times when, you know, somebody does something terrible, like Lincoln, like um, torturing Lincoln in the next episode. We can come back to this when we get to the next episode. When it's framed as we did what we had to do. The line that Bellamy gives Clark, you know, who we are and who we need to be to survive are two different things. So there's, there's also this sort of sense there's like, okay, on the one hand, there's kind of like, who are we really? We aren't, we aren't people who do these things. But then there's a sort of opposite thread, which is saying when survival is on the line. Right, right. That's when you do these things. And that's when at least there's an open question as to whether. So, I mean, I guess maybe the difference is like to go back to the shock lashing, skull nailing analogy, you know, shock lashing and hanging up bodies in the woods. Those are not survival issues. Those are enforcement issues, right? Like that's violence in service of something like enforcing a social order. Yeah, and it's sanctioned by the mores of your culture. Right, right. Like Cain does that not because he wants to hurt Abby, but because that is what the Exodus Charter says that you do. And it's only Abby who's the one who's kind of be able to say like, yeah, but the Exodus Charter is wrong, you know, so she's unusual. Versus right, right. like frying the grounders at the end of season one or you know or the end of season two mount weather or even a, you know even right. tondisi even theoretically torturing lincoln but although that's more complicated because in those cases there is a directly related issue of survival and what the first and second season do really beautifully that was i i know for both of us one of our real challenges with the third season was that the consequences of having made those choices continue to live on 
in the characters who made those choices. So like, even if the thing that you did, which was violent and terrible, even if in hindsight, after it's all over, you're like, no, I still would do that again. There wasn't another option. They're all haunted by those things. It doesn't present them as being morally right, even when it presents them as life or death necessary. And so where I feel like the show is at its strongest is in those moments where some character is facing a situation for which nothing in their previous life has ever possibly prepared them. And they're stuck between a menu of completely impossible choices and make what they think is the best one for themselves or their people. And then spend the rest of their lives questioning whether that was the right thing and being shaped by the weight of that. Like, that's what sets it apart from just being like a really violent show where like hot teenagers kill people a lot. You know, it's about the evolution of everybody's increasingly complex moral sense. And I guess what I feel like is sort of troubling about the Lincoln storyline and the grounder world building and stuff in this episode is that we're still too far away for any of that interesting complexity to really be present. So it feels like it's dealing in these sort of kindergarten level tropes that we're all like, oh, okay, those are like the creepy savage bad guys. Exactly. I mean, I think the sort of uncomfortable thing here is that this episode, that that stuff works insofar as we automatically buy all those shortcut sort of tropes of savagery. So like random violence, extreme violence, Lincoln's muteness, you know, like the extent to which we all just kind of like accept that, oh yeah, this guy can't talk. He's just doing stuff because he has no capacity for speech or explaining himself. Like there's something really uncomfortable about sort of confronting the part of you that was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. He's a grounder savage man. They don't talk. You know, like they could do that in that episode because they could trust that most of their audience would just sort of automatically go along with it. That's a trope that we're taught is true. But it's one of those things where later on you go back and I, I mean, I go, I will go back and think about it and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like I'm mildly uncomfortable yeah. about the extent to which I was just willing to go with that. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I like the idea of that being deliberate. Yeah. Which I think you, you could make that case. Setting us up to sort of confront our own effortless comfort with falling into these racist tropes and like maybe we notice that they are racist but we accept them narratively in the storytelling so that's of interest to me because that's the thing that then i think they didn't have in season three with lexa and lincoln's death where the trope did not feel considered it did not feel like they were working against that trope they just sort of used it and it was awful yeah but like here i do feel like we're deliberately trying to set it up in order to subvert it later on right it still bothers me a little bit that we never get to know why the hell he was there like why is he living in that cage in the middle of crazy like juggalo murder clown grounder territory Like, is this North Carolina? Are these the descendants of the weird, crazy Trump clown people attacking people out of nowhere? You have referenced both John Locke and Juggalos (laughs) in this segment. And I just feel like I need to say out loud that if there is ever anywhere in the world another podcast that has used those same two references to illuminate the same story, I want to know what it is because I'm almost positive we're the first. I would I would wager that we are, in fact. I would put money on no one else having compared this to both John Locke and Juggalos. I just love you so much. I am vast. I contain multitudes. 
<laughs> There's some Walt Whitman for you. Beautiful. So, I mean, I think I have a hard time telling exactly with Lincoln what they had intended to set up to be subverted later and how much and, and what it was just kind of like, here's the noble savage dude. You know, it's like it's a little bit hard to tell sometimes. And like largely because we never, ever actually do get any explanation really of what his motives were in, in what he was doing in this episode right. or why he was there or, you know, why he didn't talk, you know. And then when, like, and then we get the, he's, like, sketching Octavia in his notebook, which just makes the whole thing look even creepier because then it looks like he's, like, stalking her, you know. So so I feel like I wish for so many reasons that Lincoln wasn't dead. But I wish for one of the things that I really, 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 really wish is that we had gotten more detailed backstory on Lincoln so we could understand, you know, what he was doing there and what why he made the choices that he made. I do definitely think that at least part of what's happening is that they're using a lot of tropes in this episode to mislead us, you know, to sort of be like lull us into thinking we're in one story when we're actually in another. But without actually going all the way through and giving a full explanation, there's like there's some plot holes that linger. Right. Like if you're going to subvert a trope, then you have to explain to us afterwards that it has been subverted. Yeah. Like the love triangle yeah. like we were talking about is a perfect example they tee it up like it's going to be your two main like young female protagonists fighting over a boy because they know that you know you're watching a teen CW drama and you expect that to play out that particular way and then they go a whole different direction and it's awesome because it's completely unexpected and I think that they do write by a lot of those anti-feminist tropes like they set those things up and then they subvert them and they set them up and then they subvert them like one of my favorite things that the show does is that every grounder leader that we meet is a woman and it's never addressed. Yeah. Either positively or negatively. It's never made a thing of it like, oh, she's a lady, that's crazy. Or, oh, she's a lady, that's badass. It's just like they just are. And so they'll set something up and then turn it a different direction. Like they set up these grounders and the ones that we meet are all big, scary dudes, but they're all led by women. So they do that over and over again. But with Lincoln, it's like they set up the trope and then you're kind of like, okay, so I guess he's not a savage, but I'm sort of waiting for like, you know, it doesn't have that clear of a flip. It's just like, all right, well, he seems nice and he seems attached to her specifically, but like it takes a while for me to root for it. It's ambiguous. And I think that they keep using tropes without subverting them while also subverting other tropes. There's a kind of like, they continue to rely yeah. on, some, on some sort of more colonialist or racist tropes while deliberately subverting other ones. So there's like less consistency there. Whereas with some of like the more feminist tropes, it's much more like if they set it up, it's to subvert it. You know, they almost never, I think, would like simultaneously uphold one while subverting another. So I think maybe that's where the, the, the difference is. To me, it feels like the writing room has always had a ton of women in it. And so by and large, in broad strokes, the show does write by the women. But the writer's room is largely white and had no queer people in positions of writing and decision making. So it makes a lot of sense why those are the tropes that they fall into. It's a really simple, straightforward sort of question of representation in who's crafting these stories where you have women writing the kind of women that women like to see on television who are badass in ways that like aren't sexualized. 
Harper's guard uniform looks the same as Monty's guard uniform. It isn't a sexy girl version of a guard uniform. You know, it's things like that that women notice that women writers will catch and will do justice to. But I think it takes them a while to land on where they're at with a lot of the characters who are people of color. And I think that that explains some of why, particularly in season three, the tropes involved in Lexa and Lincoln's deaths are so troubling because you're like, those are maybe things where a largely white straight writer's room wouldn't catch those the way women catch things that are problematic for women. I think that they set up and subvert those feminist tropes really nicely throughout the whole season with a rainbow of different characters in ways that I absolutely love. And they struggle with other diversity issues kind of all throughout, I think. Yeah, no, I I mean, I agree with that. I I do also think that there's a certain extent to which the story itself is, like I was talking about before, sort of premised on, you know, it's a colonization story. Right. So like the premise of the story, you would have to turn the entire thing on its head from the start, you know? And I don't get the feeling that they were really aware, like consciously aware of colonialism being the story that they're telling, at least in season one. You can't subvert something if you don't fully realize you're doing it. So I think that's part of the reason why there are certain stereotypes or tropes that associated with like savagery or primitivism or whatever that are going to be sort of like reversed later on. But they tend, I think on some level, one way to think about it might be that they're sort of more superficial things that don't really address the sort of core issues. It's like a consistent problem and it's troubling to various degrees depending on what part of the story we're in you know i think that that part of the sort of colonialism issue colonialist story issue is is like less of an issue in season two because it's just kind of a little bit more in the the background it's about not weather you know it's no longer about like territory and and the sky people sort of like moving in they have this other enemy and so it's sort of that goes back burner and it comes back in season three but i wouldn't expect that to ever fully go away in this show yeah. It's just kind of a part of the story DNA. It's one of those things where it's like, if that's not okay with you, then that then I get that. You know, I think there are people for whom that's a kind of like deal breaker for the show. And I and I, it, I get that. It's not for me. Which totally, totally makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. And I do think that if it was me and they asked for my opinion, which they haven't yet, which is... <laughs> which is one of the problems, clearly. I don't know why Jason doesn't come on this podcast. But if it was me, like the way around it is to address it. Like the way to free yourself from the racist, I was going to say undertones, but they're pretty much also overtones of this kind of colonialist narrative is to really lean into the fact that everyone is committing genocide against other people so that their people can survive all the time on this show. And the sky people are not exempt from that. That's what they were trying to do in season three, but it did not land. My hope for season four in them sort of recentering back to these kind of smaller, more intimate stories and this sort of big kind of like, what are we willing to do to survive question? There's a handful of characters that you really see shaped profoundly by having had to take lives en masse to save their people. I think in like Bellamy and Clark and Kane in particular, everything about who they are is shaped by having done that at least once. And really seeing the way that that shapes the whole of their society. But we haven't lingered with them long enough in peacetime, because that was all the time jump. So we've never heard them have the conversations about 
who do they want to be in the future? What kind of world do they want to build? And the things they've learned from because the action is so fast paced that we never get to see, you know, we don't get to see like the new council sitting around the council table and talking like we don't get to see those things, you know, because they're not they're not, I think, as dynamic as war stuff. Part of the, the trouble with season three is that the the dilemmas that we were presented with were never convincingly presented as dilemmas of survival. Exactly. Yeah. One big difference between season one and season two versus season three is that season one and season two, we were always very, very aware that the choices that were made were being made. There, there are choices of literally life or death, like survive or don't survive. Survival as the issue about which you're you know, motivating your choices is like just so categorically different from any kind of political debate about territory or anything like that, which is what season yeah. three seemed more about, you know, like survival just changes everything. You know, part of the problem with season three is just like, I think it was supposed to be about survival, but that was never persuasive. The way to make a terrible thing that you have to do feel both awful and inevitable in a way that doesn't turn us against that character as like a bad character is to present it as all their people are at stake. Like when Clark and Bellamy and Monty pull that lever in Matt Weather, it's because we've watched them exhaust every other option, you know, and the same with the cooling too. Abby and, you know, with the cooling and then Clark with Mount Weather, like running around trying every single fucking thing that you can think of to get out of it. And then finally realizing like everyone I love will die if I don't do this thing. So I have to do this awful, awful, awful yeah. thing. And we'll die, not theoretically, but... But like right now. Yeah, imminently, imminently. They will die right now if I don't do this thing right now. And we as an audience were per persuaded that that was a reasonable belief to have and that they genuinely believe that to be their only option. Right. And so what you're left with, with both the fallout of Matt Weather on Clark and the fallout of the culling on, you know, on Kane, is that it increases the audience empathy for them without turning them into villains. And that's where they whiffed it with the army massacre with Bellamy and Pike, because the opportunity to put us in a position of, of empathy or even of just relatability and understanding with that choice wasn't given to us until like a little bit afterwards, things kind of came out in bits and pieces about like the land and the food stores and Mount Weather and things yeah, like that. Yeah, well, the problem know? is that like when the massacre happened, we were not persuaded as an audience that this was a choice that was motivated by survival. It was more presented as being about revenge. It was not at all evident that the survival, that if it was about survival, that what they were concerned about was that people were imminently going to die if they did not take the action that they took. And then also, there was never another solution considered. So we were never right. saw like right. anybody running through like we could do this, uh, but that wouldn't work because of X. We could do this, oh, that wouldn't work because of Y. We could do this, oh, that wouldn't work because of Z. Well, I guess we got to do, we got to go kill the, them, you know. So not only were we as an audience not convinced that that was the only choice that they could make to get, you know, the result that they wanted. We also were persuaded as an audience that they sincerely believed that was the only choice that they could make to get the outcome right. that they wanted. Like it, it appeared as though they were just felt like doing it, you know, <laughs> or something. Who knows? So, I mean, that was, that was the sort of, that's the difference, I think. Blake sibling feelings time. <laughs> <Woo -hoo. laughs> 
I so well so maybe I guess a good place to start just to sort of like ease into the flashbacks is to talk a little bit about in in addition to really sort of fleshing out the relationship between them and their individual kind of origin stories that we get for the first time the flashbacks also do a ton of work in helping build out the picture of arc society that we have up until this point in the story and it's sort of i think similarly to nigel like aurora does an enormous amount of both character development and world building work in a really small role the things that she sets in place both in terms of like how the arc works and also how her kids become who they become is like incalculable given that this is the only episode that we see her in you know i'm looking at aurora in the context of the way nigel in the third episode further opens a door into what life is like on the arc for the characters who are not the sort of handful of characters we've spent the most time with our sort of three arc protagonists at this point in the show are all on the council. And so they operate in a whole different other kind of level. And what we see both with Aurora and then at the very end, and then also with Shumway, is kind of, I guess, continuing to flesh out the picture of the dark, seedy underbelly of the arc lower classes and the really ugly and manipulative relationship between the power elite and the powerless that I think really shapes a lot of... You know, like, like the reason that Bellamy has the problems with authority that he has aren't because he's fundamentally like a rebellious asshole. It's because his view of arc society, of the guards, of the Exodus Charter, of, you know, the chancellor of what they consider justice on the arc is shaped by, you know, we don't know who his dad is, you know, or Octavia's dad, but like they didn't, they didn't stick around, you know, and, and they're not mentioned as being poignant absences the way like with jake for example you know where there's somebody who was missed like they're just sort of deadbeat and mm-hmm. gone you know and aurora is making a really game attempt at making a respectable living to keep her kids alive she like she has a real job but she also the choices that she makes to try to get a better life for her kids than the one that she had open up this really heartbreaking door into the like abuses of power of the arc power elite. Yeah. The guards being like, yeah, sure. I'll give your son a letter of recommendation, you know, come to my quarters. The way the sort of powerful are manipulating the more sort of blue collar people in the arc and just in little things like the difference between the Griffin's apartment in flashback and the Blake's apartment in flashback, just in terms of like how nice it is, you know, and like little sort of details like that the blakes don't have a tv and a couch and room to have guests over Mm -hmm. you know like the way that they live is so different the dependence that they have on staying on the right side of the law is so different they sprinkle in from time to time these other sort of smaller kind of supporting characters that give us a picture of how anomalous clark and abby's relationship with the arc and with sort of arc society actually is how rarefied the sort of the air that they breathe when everyone else is like aurora just like scraping along and trying to get by with the guards on your ass threatening to float you for like any single teeny tiny little infraction you could almost sort of put it as abby for sure clark to a great extent like clark certainly up until the things went down with her dad they understand the arc as how things are meant to be you know they sort of have this almost semi-naive 
belief that the way things are supposed to be, the way that we talk about things being is how they are. You know, so there's a kind of like, there are rules and this is how it works, right? And with the Blakes and then also with a little glimpse of Raven's backstory that we get when she's talking to Clark, that gives us a peek into the arc as it actually functioned. The fact that, that Clark could believe or that Abby could believe, you know, that these ideals and these procedures are the way that things actually are is, is kind of a function of their privilege, you know. Even Abby knew about Nigel and the black market. So there, the, there is an awareness, like there is a black market. But I think her relationship to it, like Kane's relationship to Nigel, even Abby's relationship to Nigel and that she knows who she is and that if she goes to her, she can get what she needs. Their understanding of that is very different from people like Raven and Bellamy. Abby's and Clark's version of what the way the arc works is a kind of like ideology that they see as being sort of hegemonic but false. And it is really interesting to kind of see, okay, you know, there's the kind of like version of things like this is how we, this is who we are and how we do things. And then there's the kind of like alternate version, disavowed, undiscussed, you know, which is like, actually, you can get whatever you want as long as you're willing to sell what you have, you know, which in, in Aurora Blake's case is her body. Nigel even implies that for Raven's mom, it was her body too, if that's all you have. You know, in other cases, it was Raven's rations that she had. So there's a kind of like brutality underlying the economics and the limitations of the situation that only becomes clear when you get people who are in a desperate enough situation to, to leverage it. Like, it would never have occurred to the Jahas or the Griffins. You know, somebody like Clark would have said, like, I would never sell my body for a letter of recommendation. Or I would never sell my child's rations for booze. And that's an easy thing to say when you're not in that situation. So, yeah. So I think you're right. So we kind of get this, like, alternate, this, like, alternate world. I can't remember when I, when I first watched this episode what my feelings and like opinions about Aurora were, but watching it this time, I have so much empathy for her, and and I think the choice that they make to present the little the little glimpse into selling her body to the guards for favors it's given to us that the reason for that is to get Bellamy into the guard. Yeah, she's not doing it for herself. She's not doing it for something for her. She's not doing it for some kind of a like morally sketchy reason both for Bellamy and also for Octavia Bellamy having a stable good job in the guards is like vital to everybody's survival and it's a ticket out of the kind of poverty that they were raised in I think the choice that they make to really let the camera linger on that moment being about she's doing something for Bellamy she's making a choice as a parent to try to give her kid a better life than she could give him using the resources that she had available to her. It's not framed as salacious. She's a parent with a really finite number of resources who's desperately trying for both her kids to get Bellamy into the guards because him having a stable job and some security is vital to her family's survival. I felt so much empathy for her watching the episode this time, like just the, the impossible set of choices that she has to make with no resources to make them, you know, and how sort of like gleefully the guards abuse that power. And, and one of my favorite things about this, these flashbacks that's so really, really well done is that 
one really tricky thing about the situation that I think it's it would be easy to gloss over in one way or another is the fact that all of that is true of Aurora. She clearly loves her children, genuinely. She's doing this for Bellamy to get him as good a position as she can get him to give him a better life. You know, him being in the guards means a, a secure living, but it also means that he has some power, which means he's going to be better able to protect Octavia. You know, so like, this is really important. This is something that she's doing because she knows and she has good reason to believe that it's going to be, you know, that this is going to protect her children. And like, I truly and sincerely believe that Aurora like really, really loves her kids and that she is doing the best that she can in a, you know, really hard situation. And yet, simultaneously, it's also true that that choice and the choices that she makes seriously and permanently fuck up her children, especially Bellamy. There is a direct relationship between what Aurora does and who Bellamy becomes. And this is another great thing about it, too. I think Bellamy almost maybe more than any other character on the show, although I think it's true to some extent of most of the, the main characters. Bellamy's best qualities, the things that we love him for, are also the source of his worst mistakes. And so I, and I think this, this episode does a really good job of setting that. So, so one thing that, that, that I do really, really well is to preserve both. This is the best that Aurora can do. And also like the best that she could do is still produces these like huge, these terrible results for Bellamy. And I think in that scene, that, that scene with her allowing herself to be groped and the sort of references to her prostituting herself to get Bellamy the letter. I mean, I think we feel a lot of empathy for Aurora as we should, but the other part of it is that Bellamy is very palpably uncomfortable with that. If you think about it from Bellamy's perspective, so yes, it's true that it's out of love that she's willing to do these things to herself or submit to this kind of treatment in order to protect her kids, right? So on the one hand, you know, I think her willingness to sacrifice her body and her her dignity and whatever, you know, for her children is really admirable. On the other hand, what she doesn't consider is how Bellamy knowing what she's doing and the fact that everything he has is predicated on it affects Bellamy. Because the thing is, you know, for her kids, it's like it's fine for her to make that choice. But I think for, for her child, for Bellamy, his sort of like discomfort and disapproval that we see in that scene, you know, I don't think it's like necessarily like because he's, you know, especially prurient about like his mom being a prostitute or whatever, or him being judgmental. Because think about it, if you were Bellamy and you knew that the only reason that you had what you had is because your mom was going out and doing this terrible thing for you, for you. And it's for you. You know she's doing it for you. That produces an enormous amount of guilt and shame. And I mean, that's just like a huge amount of pressure and guilt to put on a child. And the suggestion, too, is also that you know, this this goes along with so so this is this is something that is happening later in his life, in Octavia's life, that is compounding, you know, the fact that after Octavia was born, that that starting when he was like, you know, six years old or whatever, he had to hide the secret of his mother's pregnancy, knowing that it was wrong, that it wasn't okay. You know, he had to watch his mother give birth, which is bloody and messy and painful and terrifying. I mean, can you imagine being a little kid? watching your mom give birth, knowing, being told by her, you know, like anyone finding out about this means that we all die. That we all die, right. 
That's terrifying for a child. You know, when you're a little kid, when you're a little kid like that, you know, a parent isn't like a friend. The relationship that you have with your parent, it's not like a friend. It's not like a sibling. It's not like any other relationship you have. When you're a little kid, I remember a therapist saying this to me once because I have a lot of feelings about the Blake family. You know, this is the episode that sort of like turned Bellamy around for me. Like he crawled into my heart and it was never going to come back out again is because (laughs) Bellamy reminds me a lot in a lot of ways of my dad and my brother. My dad comes from a family where I think his mom meant well. He had people who meant well, but they just made choices that really like he had to be in charge He had to keep his mom alive and his brother alive from the time that he was pretty young. He wasn't even six. He was like, you know, 13, 14 years old. And that's the way that that shaped him in terms of, you know, his sort of inability to separate codependency from love and the resentment that that fostered in his relationship with his brother and the way that that sort of shaped him as a parent to kind of like re you know, like reproduce some of those same issues with my brother, my older brother. You know, it's one of those tragedies of family where everyone can mean well and love each other and still completely fuck each other up. You know, I had a, um, a therapist say to me what this to me once when I was talking to her about my dad, because I have a very complicated relationship with him. I was upset because I, you know, my dad was, you know, it was like, it was not healthy for me to be around him, but I couldn't let go. And I didn't understand I didn't understand. I couldn't figure out how to parse out my anger with him from how much I loved him. And what she said to me was, you know, like when you're a little kid, your parent is your entire world. You know, like, you know, on this sort of like core level, this inarticulable like lizard brain level that without them, you're dead. Without your parent, you're nothing. You won't survive and you don't even have an existence. You know, you don't have a kind of like identity separate from them in a way that you do as an adult. And so I watched that scene with little kid Bellamy watching his mom and think about like the sheer existential terror that a small child would experience first watching their parent, you know, and the only parent he has yeah. The only connection he has to the world. The only adult he has. The only adult he has. His one literal lifeline to survival and to identity. The one person that he has. Scream and cry and tell him, you know, this is a big secret that you and I have to keep. And then give birth to this baby and then hand her over to him and say, you are responsible for keeping us all alive. You know, your sister, your responsibility. I think we all sort of like latch onto, and I do too, like we all sort of romanticize your sister, your responsibility, because that is the source of all the wonderful things about Bellamy, about all the, everything that we love about Bellamy comes from the fact that he's capable of this incredibly deep sort of connection and love, and it inspires him to do heroic things to protect people. But I don't think you can escape the fact that whatever Aurora's intention, that is an incredibly humongous an amount of responsibility and guilt and adultness to put on the shoulders of a child. And so, you know, if you think about like little Bellamy growing up in that household, you know, Octavia is his whole world. It makes sense to me that he has this kind of like hypervigilance and paranoia and protectiveness and controllingness, because if you're a tiny little child with no power in the world and you were told by your mother that you are responsible for keeping this other little kid alive, what the fuck could you do? 
you'd be so scared all the time and you would have such an inappropriate level of, of responsibility and guilt for everything that happened around you. And I think also a humongous amount of anger and resentment towards the two people who put that on your shoulders, and that's Aurora and Octavia. It's effectively the end of Bellamy's childhood. Yeah, when he's a tiny little kid. He's like, he's like a little second parent. And I think it's possible and also really, really important to simultaneously understand why Aurora does what she does and empathize with her and, and know that she's doing the best that she can and that it's coming from a genuine place of love. And remember that, you know, of course, like Bellamy loves her too. His love for her and his love for Octavia are genuine, but that they are also like profoundly dysfunctional and that that love coexists with an enormous amount of anger and resentment and guilt and hurt that has to be confronted before it can be overcome. So, I mean, I just, I, and I think they, they, they do such a, a really good job of holding that all together in the flashbacks. So in those moments, you know, in, in that scene with the guard, when he comes in, you know, you can simultaneously empathize with Aurora and also with Bellamy and his sort of like fear and resentment and also with Octavia underneath the floorboards, you know, totally like ignorant and unaware of what's happening and just trying to, to be brave. The thing that I kept thinking watching this episode is like Aurora is one of those parents who sort of feels, and I'm sure our society produced more parents like this than not. But she's one of those parents who sort of views her responsibility as a parent is to, like, keep these kids alive and healthy and sort of basically functional. And so she will do whatever she has to do to keep them, you know, to make sure that they have food and clothing and, you know, enough of an income that they don't starve so that if anything happens to her that they're, like, provided for. And so, like, to that end, it's like she's doing the good parent thing by making the sacrifices that she has to make to get that to happen. But the piece that she does not ever consider is the way the things that she says and does or that her kids sort of absorb through osmosis land in them emotionally. The person that Bellamy becomes, both in good and bad, 100% makes sense with the information that we're given about him here. When Shumway comes in and offers him to make him the deal if he'll shoot the chancellor, they've done such a beautiful job at that point to explain exactly how Bellamy came to be a person who would make that deal. And he's a person who would make that deal because his entire life he's been sort of, he's absorbed the message that A, his, his like number one main chief duty and reason for being is to protect Octavia. And number two, that in the pursuit of protecting the people that you love, what you do is what his mother did, which is sacrifice your body and your morality. Everything about you. It doesn't matter whether you feel like it's right or wrong. It doesn't matter whether it makes you feel dirty. You do what you have to do to keep Octavia alive. So his mom sold her body and he's willing to murder someone. And I think that's a logical result of the sort of not unintentional message that he absorbed as a child. You know, that explains why he's willing to shoot Jaha. I think that's why it can be simultaneously true for Clark to say to him, you are not a killer. You are the guy who protects your sister. And also have him be someone who is willing to kill pretty readily. For First for Octavia, and then eventually for whoever comes into that, you know, that, that circle of 
protection that he has. And and then also, I mean, I think, you know, if you sort of think about Bellamy as a child who, you know, who from the moment when his mom was pregnant and when Octavia was born, sort of lived in a world defined by this belief that at any moment, if something goes wrong, there's a kind of like you and your little unit and then anyone else who's not in that unit could at any moment turn into the source of disaster. You know, at any moment, one of those people could become the reason you and your family die. So I think that that kind of sense of low-key life-or-death paranoia being sort of so deeply ingrained in his psyche from such a young age is also why it's so easy for him to go straight to grounders are people who are trying to kill us. And that means in a kind of like unconsidered straight line, like, therefore, I must do whatever I have to do in order to protect them, regardless of how I feel about it personally, because this is who I, you know, there's a kind of like emotional logic to that slide that I think you can see built into his upbringing and the messages that he was given by his mother, both, you know, verbally and intentionally, but also non-verbally and unintentionally. And that it lives alongside this kind of habitual, instinctive distrust of, I mean, of authority, but also just of adults. You know, when the storyline sort of finally collide at the beginning of season two, even though it isn't ever made textual, you know, I think you can see in the way that he just sort of instinctively kind of bristles and panics, like at Kane or Abby trying to like tell him what to do, or you sort of get this sort of shadow of this kind of childhood storyline flashing back when when you see the beginning of season two that like he feels like Kane is standing in between him and being able to go rescue Clark. Yeah, yeah. You can't trust anyone wearing a guard uniform. They are an oppositional force to be circumvented or defied using whatever means necessary. Like his default assumption is that they are a threat. You know, his default assumption is that they are like at best an obstructionist thing in the way. And at worst, they will kill your mother. You know, they will take everything from you. And so I think one of the things I was really interested in in season three that I think didn't quite go where I wanted it to, but we got lots of really interesting kind of moments of it is what it's like for Bellamy to sort of find himself on the other side of that, where he is in the hierarchy, where he becomes a leader who is sort of inside that circle. And like, how does he negotiate being on the guards, being sort of like one of the leaders of them? Like, that's an interesting, that journey of of how he sort of finds himself, you know, like when you're not a renegade anymore, like you actually have to like be a leader and make those decisions. Completely like just like flipping his relationship with the power structure, I think is really fascinating. There's a certain like tragedy. I think this is one of those things where, you know, I'll never stop being salty about 304. I know. And how little explanation we got for Bellamy's choices or how like how sort of glossed over, rushed through his motivations were for siding with Pike. Because I think you can make a case, you know, this is one of those things where it's like, it is not on the screen and I will never stop being angry at the writers and the choice of the editing choices they made for that. But I think there is a, there is a kind of consistency in terms of the way, you know, you can sort of imagine Bellamy now in a more of a leadership position being offered a greater position of power by Pike, but still making that same, essentially same kind of emotional decision, which basically goes from 
there's this thing that is going to imminently threaten us. Therefore, I must do whatever I have to do, regardless of how I feel about it. You know, that sort of source of like your sort of moral reservations about what you're doing are irrelevant because what we do is what we have to do to survive. They're kind of like, it doesn't matter how you feel about your mom sleeping with the guards to get this information. It doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. We got to do it. You know, like you have to sacrifice that. You know, I could sort of see that being a part of this character DNA that is being picked up and placed in the situation where like, what does that look like when Bellamy has more power? And when that decision making is directed not towards individuals, but rather towards entire groups. I think that was in the background. That's probably what they intended, but it wasn't done. But I think that's kind of where it comes from. And one thing that I think to get a little bit of blark in here, at the very, very beginning, there's like, I, I think a very underrated Bellamy Clark scene where Bellamy is going through the, the camp trying to find Octavia and he goes straight to Clark's tent. And this is, you know, we're still in kind of like, this is very much Bellamy in his kind of like alpha male mode, but he goes straight to Clark's tent he kind of like slips into that vulnerability that he really only shows to her where he asks her if she's seen Octavia and sort of asks her to help. And I think one thing that really struck me about that scene this time in their relationship is that at this point after 105, they're still reluctant co-leaders, right? Like they're reluctant allies, but they still don't really like each other or fully trust each other, or at least Clark doesn't really like him. There's like, it's a little bit tense. But I think what's interesting is that, first of all, like Bellamy is actually willing to kind of be more vulnerable with her, you know, like show that he's worried and scared and that he's willing to ask her for help. The fact that he trusts that even though she doesn't like him, she will help him. And that he's correct about that. Like the second she realizes how serious he is, she snaps right out of that sass and she's like, all right, let's go. Right, exactly. You know, and then later on he says, you know, he says, thank you. And she says, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for Octavia. You know, the look on his face is kind of like, well, obviously, you know, no one ever does anything for me. We do it for Octavia. (laughs) This is maybe shipper goggles probably more than anything else. I think there's a certain, there's an extent to which that's not really entirely true. You know, she's doing a little bit for him, but he doesn't believe that. But I think there's something like the roots of their relationship are sort of coming through there. And one of them is that I don't think there's ever been anyone in Bellamy's life before who he trusted, you know, other than his, like his mother, there's never been anyone outside of his family unit that he trusted you know, to whom he could show that vulnerability, who would help him just because he needed them to help him, not because he had to manipulate them or bully them or like turn on his like, Mr. I'm the leader guy, let's go, we're doing this thing, you know, like I'm taking half the resources of the camp to go find my sister kind of thing, just because he trusts her to do that. I think that's like one of those like little tiny moments and then that's it. And then it kind of like veers off into into different directions. But I think is a very important moment for them together. But for Bellamy also as a person, like that's something new for him. Clark's the kind of person that he's never really had in his life before. You know, one of the things that we were talking about in the last podcast about one of the recurring problems with Finn as the show is kind of finding its feet and how it writes these male characters is, you know, Finn being sort of solely defined in the context of relationships that are romantic and sexual. And I think that by planting so early on and so consistently that the thing that kind of breaks through the mistrust and headbutting in Clark and Bellamy's relationship is Clark seeing the way he cares about Octavia. Like that that over and over again is is a thing that comes up that's how she sort of learns to see him in a way that begins to approach 
trust, I think is really important. Every time Clark sees that side of him that is different from the way everyone else in the camp sees him as this gun-toting, power-hungry blowhard, and Clark can sort of see past that underneath it to the vulnerability and protectiveness, where she's seeing him driven by love. And the fact that she can see that he's a person who loves that deeply gives him like a texture and layers to her that the rest of the camp doesn't see him as that person yet. I think it's really beautifully, subtly, deftly handled that it tends to be Octavia related things that kind of begin to sort of break down those walls between them where she begins to sort of see like there's more going on to him than how he chooses to present himself. What's driving this is that Clark, although she hasn't had to do this really yet, Clark is at heart the same as Bellamy in that, you know, she also sort of has this love and this willingness to sacrifice herself for the people that she loves. And so this is part of the reason why they are able to give each other forgiveness and understanding that other people can't, you know, and they're able to sort of like see each other in the way that other people can't and share those experiences in a way that like, say, Octavia can't understand the choices that Bellamy makes. And Abby can't, at least at first, can't understand the choices that Clark makes. You know, so that they have that kind of like core commonality that is not at first apparent because of these superficial differences, but there's this deeper sort of kinship that they have that she's starting to see, I think you're right, through understanding like, all right, you know, you're not a killer. You're the guy who'll do anything to protect your sister. That's you. That's the real you. All this kind of other stuff is just, you know, is like window dressing that's getting in the way of the real you. She's not done being pissed about the radio and the way they talk about the funeral, like them realizing that they were too late. Like it's not all like sunshine and roses, but the the thing that can kind of cut through that frustration that she's feeling is she recognizes the depth of his worry about Octavia and is like, all right, like I'm going to I'm going to put the fact that I'm super pissed at you on pause for a second because I get that this is a real thing. Well, and also when she says, you know, yeah, now he has to live with it. You know, she sees that he cares about that. He is experiencing, you know, kind of like guilt over that, that, you know, that's like way worse than being yelled at by Raven. (laughs) Yeah, like they don't need to punish him for that. He's punishing himself for that just fine. Right, exactly. So I think that that sort of understanding is growing there, too. The other thing that really is important to me about the Blake sibling relationship, and I think that they do really well, too, is that. You know, they do such a good job, I think, of showing how deep and profound and true and important and central to Bellamy his love for Octavia is, you know, like his defining characteristic really is like how much he loves his sister, you know, it's his capacity to love her and to sort of like devote himself to that and the way that he manages to expand that. But they don't ignore the ways that that kind of love can also be a terrible, terrible thing for both the person who feels it and the person who is loved. You know, I think they do such a good job of showing how the sort of relationship that the Blake siblings had growing up was really, you know, so important to both of them, but then also so very destructive to both of them. And that They have to relearn how to love each other in order to really be functional. You know, and that terrible, painful fight they have at the end. Oh, God. Where, like, honestly, they're both right. Octavia is not wrong to be angry at him for being so controlling, for not listening to her. You know, she's trying to explain to him that he didn't understand, you know, what Lincoln was trying to do and that 
he made things worse by not leaving when she wanted to leave and trying to hang around and kill the guy. You see that that resentment that their situation growing up breeds, which is that, you know, his resentment of her when he says, my life ended the day that you were born, I think he obviously doesn't mean it, but on some level he does mean it because I think that's that's the manifestation of the resentment that he feels for the fact that his entire life has been defined by her. And it's totally natural and like psychologically realistic that as much as he loves her, he also resents her. And it's just like as much as he loves his mom, he resents his mom. This is the way you fight with family, right? Like you say these things and only in the most extreme of circumstances because you know where the buttons are. You know exactly like what the most true hurtful thing is to say. And when you love somebody, you work very hard to not say those things because you know how devastating they are. And with family where you have this unfiltered closeness in those really sort of like primal raw moments of just absolute fury where all of the things that you sort of hold in because you love somebody kind of fly out the window. And a literal lifetime of it. Yeah, yeah. And you just laser focus in straight onto the worst imaginable thing that you could say. What's interesting about that moment for the two of them is that because it feels like they're both releasing sort of pent up decades worth of stuff, it feels sort of like what we're getting at is like a lifetime of silently, irritably chafing at each other that has never boiled over into the big kind of cathartic air clearing fight they probably have needed their whole yeah, entire exactly. lives yeah. until this moment. There's never been an opportunity where they've said these things to each other before. So they're devastating when they land because they have that ring of truth to them where you can feel how long they've been thinking this and then trying not to think it. You know, like you have the ugly thought and then you're like, no, 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 but I love you. Like, I don't want to be mad at you. I love you. I want to put this away. I want to not think about it. Yeah, you can imagine Octavia in the skybox having days and hours where she's wrestling with how angry she is at Bellamy because it's his fault that she's in there. And then hating herself and being devastated at having that thought because she also loves him and misses him so much. And the only reason that she's arrested is because he was trying to do something. Something nice and good for, yeah. And yeah. it went wrong for reasons that weren't his fault. Right. But then you can also imagine Bellamy his entire life. You know, like in school when he wants to go, you know, do something with these other kids and he can't. And he has to be the weirdo or the outsider. He, you know, he has to, like things that, that other people get to do that he can never get to do because she was born. And the pressure of lying all yeah, the time. Yeah, exactly. Like, the endless crushing exhaustion of having to lie in every conversation every time you leave the house. Exactly. And you can imagine him thinking, you know, like being out there, having to lie, having to hide himself, not getting to be a normal kid and blaming Octavia, thinking to himself, like when she, the moment she was born was the moment this was taken away from me. You know, and then hating himself for it and coming home and seeing her and feeling terribly guilty and awful because of course he loves her. He's her entire world, which is simultaneously a beautiful thing, but also, again, an enormously, crushingly huge pressure to put on anyone, let alone a child. That fight is like so devastating because like you said, it is just like literal lifetimes of things that have oh, gone yeah. unsaid because if they said those things to each other, that would have destroyed literally everything they had, which was each other, which is why them having only each other is so like fundamentally dysfunctional. You know, like this is why codependent relationships blow up. 
it builds up. And if you've never learned a better way to do it, like if you've never learned how to be like frank and honest, even when it's uncomfortable, if you're like, nope, I'm feeling a thought. And what I'm going to do with that thought is I'm going to just push it down because I don't want to have it. Then when things inevitably sort of like boil over and explode, you like can't believe the ugliness of the things that you're saying to the people that you like love the most in the whole entire world. But you don't know any other way to be. And we see echoes of that, too, with Clark and Abby, like with how long it takes them to get any kind of equilibrium back in both of these families. Like this is the first explosive conflict where you say the unspeakable thing, you know, where Clark telling Abby in the next episode, it's your fault that my dad is dead. And in this episode, Octavia telling Bellamy, mom is dead because of you. And Bellamy telling Octavia, like, my life was over because like, These are the things that you don't say and you hate yourself for even thinking them. So you just put them away. But if you never have any kind of a like frank, non-adversarial, like, hey, this is just how I feel kind of conversation. And you just say, like, I'm a bad person for even entertaining this thought. I'm going to repress it. Then when the explosion comes, like you have no tools to deal with it. You just say these things and you're just like, I can't believe I just said that. And now it's out there and it's been said. It's so painful because it's so relatable. It is such a real sibling fight that they're having. And it takes them such a long time to like process through that. They just do such a good job, I feel like, with those family relationships on this show and making them feel really grounded in believable emotional truths. It also a little bit highlights, I think, the differences between Octavia and and Bellamy in terms of like how their backgrounds shape them. Because I think Octavia's issues obviously are very different because because her problem is that she was never allowed any kind of, you know, freedom. She's never allowed any kind of release. She was always sort of like being told what to do and being controlled and contained. When the inspection came, you know, her experience of that issue of of what was going on wasn't like she probably didn't really know what her mom was doing. You know, she didn't really know because she was sheltered from it and because she's too young. Yeah, I don't think that we were meant to believe that she knew at all. No, and I'm pretty sure, you know, in that kind of situation that, you know, Bellamy certainly would shelter her from really understanding what Bellamy was sacrificing for her. He want her not to know how bad things were because he wants her to feel safe and happy. He wouldn't want her to know what it cost him to do what he was doing to protect her. Like part of this is I'm projecting a little bit because again, like a lot of my feelings about this episode and about like siblings are shaped by the fact that like I'm a little sister and I have an older brother and I come from... Uh, like kind of fucked up background and like when I was little up until my brother went to high school he like protected me you know like when things were scary like he was the one who sort of would stand up and fight back and kind of absorb the damage you know what I mean like I was terrified when he went to college like I didn't I didn't know I was so scared if it was just gonna be me you know because he was always the one who did the fighting and protected me a little bit and I didn't know, I, like, I really didn't know until I was, until we were both adults, how much that cost him. You know, I had no idea. And yeah. he wouldn't want me to know. Because that was part of what he was protecting you from. Exactly. Exactly. Because I was his little sister and he wanted to protect me. And like, so I, I appreciate that in him, but it also breaks my heart, you know, because I didn't know yeah. how much keeping me feeling safe 
meant sacrificing him feeling safe. In some way, it wasn't quite the same. You know, he didn't like, it wasn't protective of me to the, like, the extreme degree that Bellamy is. But there's like a little bit of that dynamic here. Like the tragedy of Bellamy being put in a position where he and Aurora are sort of having to co-parent Octavia together to protect Octavia is that there is no one to protect Bellamy. Like no one is exactly, thinking about exactly. the emotional impact of this on Bellamy. Yes. Nobody is saying you're also still a kid who needs to be taken care of and shielded from these things. And I am the parent that she sort of abdicates all responsibility for the parenting of Bellamy yeah, yeah. to parent Octavia with Bellamy. You understand why she made that choice? Because protecting Octavia is sort of about everyone's safety and Octavia is younger and she's kind of like, Bellamy's old enough to care about. And Bellamy's the child who's allowed to exist, so he doesn't need protecting in the same way. But, you know, it inadvertently produces, it inadvertently kind of tells Bellamy, in addition to, you know, like making him sort of take on this responsibility that no kid should, it also sort of tells, like you said, it makes Bellamy feel like there's no one to protect him, that he's less worth protecting. There's a degree to which I think you can see maybe part of what's motivating Bellamy with Octavia is he's giving her the protection that he never got but wanted. Yeah. You know, which is, again, one of those things that's like, it's not fair to anyone. Octavia doesn't get that. You know, she can't get that. For her, it feels like smothering. For her, it feels like he won't listen. He won't give her space. He won't trust her. You know, he won't let her explore. You know, he's too afraid to let her go off on her own or make mistakes or have relationships or do, you know. So for her, it feels smothering. And for him, it feels like love and it feels like crucial in this way that I don't think either of them completely understand. But, you know, from but like from Octavia's perspective, you know, like she has no way of knowing any of this. You know, like she has no idea. And it really gets at, I think, one of those sort of fascinating truths about having siblings is how you can have the exact same set of parents and completely different childhoods, like unrecognizably different experiences of childhood because family dynamics are so fundamentally complicated. Octavia's memories of her mother and Bellamy's memories of his mother are two different women. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And Octavia's trauma and experience of her childhood is like categorically different from Bellamy's in ways that are sort of like unrecognizable to each other, but also like inextricable from each other, you know, which is why they're so complicated and they struggle so much despite loving each other. I think this is why like Bellamy also can't recognize, you know, how um, tough and self-sufficient Octavia is. I think it would break Bellamy's heart to know how much Octavia feels like and has felt like she's on her own. Yeah. You know, like, I think he thinks about him always. He always is thinking about her and protecting her. But for her, it's like she was all alone under those floorboards. It was her all by herself. It was her and her fears, her slaying her demons. She had to learn how to deal with those things on her own. And we sort of see... The fruits of that in this episode when she's, you know, she's taken and she's in a place she doesn't know and she's all alone and she doesn't crumple, you know, she's not like, you know, I don't know what to do when there isn't somebody to protect me. She's like, slay your demons, Octavia, you know, like you're in the hole again, get yourself out. You know, I think that comes from the kind of yeah, way in which yeah. she was very, very isolated as a child and in many ways felt like she had to take care of herself in those moments, which again, like I think Bellamy just categorically cannot understand. 
because he always saw himself as being responsible for her. Like the scene where the guards come in and Octavia is hiding under the floorboards. Aurora's perception of her job as a parent in that scene is one, she has to protect Octavia by like obscuring any trace that Octavia exists. And two, she is sort of agreeing to, you know, this really kind of creepy liaison with this guard guy to get Bellamy onto the guard. So again, she's like being a parent in this sort of very like, I'm keeping my children alive kind of way. And that's the parenting that Bellamy absorbed. Neither of them is thinking about what's going on underneath the floorboards where Octavia is laying there alone in panic, listening to all of this going on. Bellamy didn't, you know, he learned how to parent from Aurora and Aurora's parenting is totally divorced from thinking about the emotional impact of the things that her kids hear her say and do and how those things sort of like lodge in their brains forever because she's like, my job is to keep you like alive and fed and healthy and keep Octavia from being caught by the guards or we'll all be killed. And rightfully so, like those are all, yes, like keep your kid alive is like top parent priority, you know? And so that's the kind of parenting model that Bellamy learned on Octavia. So he also is not thinking about what that does for her emotionally. As she kind of matures over the course of three seasons and we really see this kind of running thread that they bring back from time to time really, really beautifully of Octavia being a person who fits in nowhere. And the fact that she does not perceive the Sky people to be her people in the same way that the other kids do. Even the other ones who were also criminals who were locked up for various reasons. Like, you know, Murphy doesn't like him, but like, they're still Murphy's people. Like, he's still part of them in some way he can't quite, like, shake off. And Octavia rightfully so feels a completely different relationship with that entire culture that wanted her dead from the moment that she was born and so like the emotional toll that it takes on her having to sort of spend all of those years like watching and listening to her family pretend like she didn't exist you know like that's Aurora and Bellamy can't mentally put themselves like they can't go down underneath those floorboards with her in the flashback right before the dance I think that's that there's a beautiful illustration of that where Bellamy comes in all excited and she's like I don't want to hear another about another beautiful moonrise that I'm never gonna see you know and you can see in that moment that kind of dissonance where Bellamy's trying to help he understands what she's missing out on and he tries to share it with her out of his love for her so that's like for him that's like a bit of that's a that's a kind of moment of generosity for her that's just a reminder that she's an outsider permanently no matter how much other people love her and want to accept her for her it's she's never gonna feel like she's a part of it because she's always been an outsider in a way that even bellamy can't wasn't and couldn't understand you know because he was out there like he was and, you know and she you know, like and he didn't feel like he fit in because he's like constantly lying but he's at least mixing around so like she can't understand the ways that like him having to lie sort of shaped it and he can't really understand what it means to be like totally separate and other and and yeah oh they just need a hug i, just I hug know them. me too i just want to like wrap them up and i don't know this is one of those episodes where i'm just I mean, it's like, I, I do really, really appreciate the kind of like nuance and psychological sensitivity and willingness to dwell in the sort of tragic ambiguity of a situation where, you know, in a situation like the Blakes, where it's like, when you take people and put them in a, a terrible situation like that, in that context, it doesn't matter how much they love each other or 
how well they mean. Exactly, yeah. It's inevitable that they're going to, they're going to have to hurt each other because they simply, it is simply impossible for Every, for these three people to be everything that they need to be to each other and to understand completely what what the rest of them are doing for love, you know? And so for me, if The Culling is kind of like the best piece of storytelling they did on the kind of like larger scale moral conundrum uh, level, I think for me, what they do with the Blakes here is one of the best, if not the best bit of storytelling they've done in terms of exploring that kind of like ambiguity and irresolvability of the problem of perspective and experience when it comes to interpersonal relationships and psychology. You know, where you have like three people, Bellamy, Octavia, and Aurora, who are totally empathetic and understandable in terms of who they are and how they became who they are based on their situation while at the same time having tragically like against their will inadvertently so deeply hurt and misunderstood each other. I really appreciate the show having done such a good job with that while at the same time wanting to fly in and grab everyone and put them into therapy for a thousand years (laughs) and wrap them in blankets and give them puppies and chocolate. This is the fundamental flaw of the my faves deserve better kind of narrative is that really good storytelling happens when you love these characters tremendously and you're watching terrible things happen to them. But if, we, if I didn't care about these two characters, I wouldn't care that they were siblings who were fighting. I think the show is at its strongest when, and we sort of see this really, you know, as a as a recurring theme throughout all the seasons where everyone is acting out of love and loyalty and good intentions and something awful happens anyway, where everybody means well, nobody is evil for the sake of being evil. Many times they're not even being selfish. Like there are characters that are sort of more self-motivated, you know, than than others. But the big tragic, like on sort of like a large culling scale and on a sort of small intimate sibling relationship scale, those most sort of compelling tragic moments are when everyone is trying to do the best they can for somebody else. You know, like that's like the that's what with the culling. Like everyone involved in the culling, everyone with any degree of complicity in it was trying to save somebody else's life. You know, either on a large scale or a small scale. Everybody was. From Bellamy in the radio to Jaha giving the order to cut off oxygen to Section 17. Like, everyone is trying to save lives. And, you know, and with the Blake, they're all motivated by trying to take care of each other. Everyone's motivated by love. And yet you still arrive at the place where you arrive because it was inevitable. But you feel it in this totally different way because every single angle of that tragic event is empathetic and comprehensible. You can literally see it from every character's side. And they lose that a little bit in season three with the Grounder Army Massacre and things that really do feel a little bit more sort of like there's a wrong and a right, you know. But but in season one, we don't have that with anything. Everything fucked up that happens in season one, you're like, I get why you did it, but I also get why you were angry, but I also get why this happened. You can put yourself in everybody's shoes with the Blakes, you know, with the Griffins when Jake dies, with the culling, with the choices that they make on the ground, like all those things. You can see why everybody involved made that choice and they're all relatable and empathetic and yet still... That is not enough to stop bad things from happening. And so the richness of that storytelling is in the fact that it makes you feel incredibly strong emotional attachment to these characters that are powerless to prevent each other's suffering. Yeah, yeah. Even no matter how desperately they wish that they could. It's sometimes 
they cause further suffering when they were actively trying to prevent it. It's it's just like beautiful and heartbreaking and tragic. And I agree with you that the so-and-so deserves better narrative. Often misses the point with that. I mean, and, and maybe sometimes it's like beside the point because like this is where it kind of crosses over to real life. Well, like, sure, you know, most people deserve better. A lot of people deserve better than what they've got. But that's irrelevant. You know, we don't get what we deserve. We get what we get. Yeah. <laughs> Which is sometimes a good thing. <laughs> sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's not, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But getting what you deserve, you're probably not going to get it. So it's probably best not to dwell on whether or not you have it. On a primal level, like all I want in the entire world from this show is for Kane to be the Blake's dad and just like wrap them up in blankets and give them hot cocoa and love them and affirm them and support them <laughs> and tell them how wonderful they are and how proud he is of his babies. <laughs> but also, like, that wouldn't necessarily be as compelling of a show. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'd watch the like 8 p.m. on a Tuesday night ABC channel sitcom <laughs> version of this show <laughs> about like the Blakes and Griffins as like the Brady Bunch of the arc. But that is not the show. Watching characters that you care about deeply suffer and move past that and grow from it is the stuff of really excellent television because you're so like already we're six episodes in. And we are so fucking invested in the Blake sibling yeah. relationship. And also, I feel like, and I think this doesn't get talked about enough, I feel like one of the sort of quietly revolutionary things about this show is how many of the relationships we're the most invested in this early are familial or platonic. Yeah, that's true. You know, like there's really, there's, there's the Finn Clark Raven love triangle. And every other combination of characters that has a high stakes relationship that we're invested in at this stage in the show are families or found families. Yes. Yeah. Like Octavia being defined in relationship to her role in her family and trying to kind of find her feet in this new world where like she doesn't want to be the girl who lives under the floorboards. Yes, it involves a love interest. Like, yes, her arc is romantic involving Lincoln. But it doesn't begin that way. The lunch point is like Octavia trying to sort of find a role for herself. You know, like it's about her sort of journeying into her own identity. And so I just feel like the fact that the pairing you're most invested in at this point in this season, or the two pairings really, I guess, you know, for, for me, it's a mother and a daughter and then a pair of siblings. And that's where you feel like the real like, oh my God, are they going to be okay? It's not driven by sex and romance it's driven by familial love i think that's also sort of like a, a kind of sneaky secret feminist thing about this show is women whose core relationships that we see them really shaped by aren't like the dude they're banging it's significant that in day trip that the relationships that are driving clark and bellamy for clark it's about her dad you know it's about her dad and her mom and for bellamy it's octavia you know, when they're talking under the tree, what they talk about is Clark's mom and Octavia. They don't talk about Finn. It's about like these these sort of familial relationships and their relationships with the other delinquents. And those are the things that are most important to them that, that shape who they are. To the extent that Finn shapes Clark and Raven, they're not defined by their relationship to him or their feelings for him. Really, I think they're more shaped by their reactions to what happens with him and to each other. Yeah. Finn is a thing that happens 
to the Clark and Raven relationship. Yeah, and then and then to Clark and Raven individually, you know, so so that Finn for Raven becomes a kind of occasion for her to sort of say, you don't love me the way I want to be loved, and so I'm going to end this and move on. And for Clark, I mean, to some extent becomes kind of like irrelevant to her, to the rest of her development, but gives her that relationship with Raven. In the next episode, he, like, his medical condition is the occasion for her working through her relationship with her mother. Finn is more like a vehicle for Clark and Raven to each develop as characters in ways that don't directly have to do with him, but rather he sort of like creates the narrative possibility for that to happen or like provides the impetus or whatever, you know, which is interesting because like, so he becomes a kind of like device for them, which I think, you know, is a good way to think of Finn. (laughs) I resent him much less as a plot device than as a human man. I have to listen to say words. The hook for me in falling in love with the show is like, I'm a sucker for family and found family dynamics. Not cheesy sitcom families, like real families with real baggage, you know, how they sort of deal with and process crises and things like that. For me, that's the thing that's really captivating. And I think it's really remarkable this early on in the run of the show, like now that I'm sort of going back and watching it, how much of the Blakes is there from from the beginning and that and how much of sort of the future of where we see them land is foreshadowed really effectively in this flashback, like how their journeys feel organically shaped by their childhood. They've done such good work, you know, in building that relationship. If we're done with the Blake siblings for now. Yes. I have one thing about Jasper that I wanted to circle back to. Oh, uh uh-huh. When we were talking before, you know, about the, when was Linktavia supposed to start versus the Jasper Octavia sort of lingering stuff in this episode. And, like, how confusing it is that, like, they were definitely, I think, setting up Lincoln and Octavia in this episode because it is so closely intertwined with the next episode where that becomes a thing. I don't think there's any possible way they couldn't have known where they were going with Lincoln and Octavia at this point. Right. But then they're still sort of inserting this, like, you know, Jasper's the kid at the only other kid that we know at the dance and he sees Octavia as a moment like, whoa, who is that? You know, which is in any other show would be setting up a kind of, you know, romantic long term sort of arc. And then also, we talked this a little bit about this last time, where the arc that Jasper is on in this season is overcoming his fear. He's traumatized and afraid of the grounders, understandably, and so one the thing that he's sort of like working through over the course of the season is overcoming his fear and you know learning how to be brave and learning how to be you know strong and 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 how to survive in this place that he that almost killed him on the first day. So, okay, so so this is one thought that I have about how this, like, seemingly anomalous Jasper stuff in this episode might be working into his overall season one arc. And we can kind of see, we can, we can maybe keep an eye on it. So those little bits that we got, the, like, Jasper seeing Octavia and being like, whoa, who's that? And then him sort of deciding, like, no, I have to go, you know, help save Octavia. Now, in addition to kind of seemingly building on this like Jasper Octavia romance. They're also both very cliched, very typical romantic tropes. Like one of the reasons why they're confusing is because these are the kind of things that you would expect a show to drop in to be like, love story, love story, love story, classic love story. Boy sees girl across the dance and is instantly captivated by her. Boy must go save girl from the terrible monster that has kidnapped her He's going to be the hero. She's going to, you know, fall in love with him for saving her, et cetera, et cetera. So I think maybe it's possible 
that why those are there in this episode is that they're not there to set up a Jasper Octavia love story or to further one that's going to happen. They're being set up perhaps as a kind of like pattern that's also being established with Jasper with this kind of like imagination he has of masculinity and of like sort of performing romance that's going to culminate in his like gross misogynistic behavior with Harper after he actually does Mm. become the hero in order to then subvert Mm. those later on. So I think maybe these are here to set up There's the kind of like Jasper becomes a hero arc, but then there's also the Jasper becomes a hero and misinterprets what that means arc. And these are a part of that arc that is then going to be resolved. Okay, so in a way, it's like what we're seeing is Jasper trying to emulate Bellamy and Finn and like wanting to be a dude like that. Yes, yes. And that it's more about that and more about sort of hero worship and wanting to be the hero than it is specifically about, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. because all of the like moments that are really coded as table setting for romance between them play into that like hot girl as reward for doing heroic thing, like the sea monster, the like bravery is always rewarded cheek kiss. They're all about being a brave hero dude. Then you are then rewarded by attention from hot girls. Exactly. And in every other instance, that logic is subverted. So in Bellamy's case, it's like that kind of masculinity, you know, that's sort of defined by sexual conquest and, and, you know, like throwing your weight around and stuff is deliberately shown as being a bad thing, a thing that he does in order to establish himself as being in charge and he himself is emulating. Yeah, it's posturing. Yeah, it's posturing. He's emulating like the dickhole guard who like harassed his mom, you know? Right, so right, like, right. He's enacting something like that too because that's what he understood. Yeah. You know, that that's shown as being bad and it's something that he stops doing and that he kind of like changes and overcomes later. And then in Finn, I mean, I think it's compromised by the fact that You know, it's all tied up in him sort of like flirting with Clark, which is then later shown to be sort of like compromised. And then in the second season, it's totally subvertive because, you know, that's part of what's driving him when he kind of like loses his mind and decides that in order to protect, you know, his love or whatever, he has to like kill this village of grounders. And it's also revealed that the thing that gave him his like cocky roguish reputation was actually Raven and not him all along. Exactly. So so in every other instance, those kinds of things are set up to be sort of knocked down. And I think it's also set up to be knocked down, you know, in, in that later episode with Jasper, he's sort of like, he's deliberately also framed as like, he has this little success, he becomes the hero at, at the bridge. And then it, he, it goes to his head and he starts acting like Bellamy was acting, which is, you know, terrible. And Monty calls him out. Right, right. And so, so I wonder if these little hints, they're not... They're, they're meant to be setting up that part of Jasper's arc. And like, and so Octavia is the sort of like person that he fixates on, but it's yeah. meant to be kind of like weird and one-sided and not really about Octavia and, and never going to go anywhere. I really, really like this interpretation because I feel like if that really is where this was all going, it fits in so beautifully with how we see Jasper's season two arc unfold, where like he does genuinely find himself kind of forced to become a hero leader person, but it is still a story that is sort of centralized around a girl kind of first. So it feels like that's a consistently deployed personality trait. 
Oh, I really like this. I do too. So I think we should keep an eye on it as we watch subsequent episodes yeah. and see if how it works out. Because like I, you know, I'm just going on like my memory of what right, happens right. next. I feel like everything that we've seen so far that has felt like it's coding Jasper Octavia as future romantic pairing also is in the context of like be a hero and a hot babe will be your reward. Right. So sort of keeping an eye on like if that's a continued pattern throughout the course of the season. Yeah, I like this. You've blown my mind once more. (laughs) First with insult sandwiches and now with (laughs) Jasper. (laughs) And then with John Locke and the the (laughs) Juggalos. If there's a title for this one, if there's a subtitle for this podcast, it's got to be John Locke and Juggalos. (laughs) That's going to go in all of the teasers. (laughs) So thank you, everyone, for tuning in again. We will be coming back in about two weeks uh, with 107. The plan now is to do podcasts every two weeks where we're just going to be doing one episode at a time because... It turns out we have lots of things to say, and if we try to do two, then the second one just winds up being like a mostly deflated balloon, just kind of going. Yeah, <laughs> that was asking a lot of our powers to cram two full episodes into like a three or four hour conversation. Yeah, when we are currently at the three hour forty two minute mark on just this one. Yeah, <laughs> we're just gonna lean into it. Like we're just like we're just gonna be yep, who we are. Yep, basically, we tried, you know, and it just like didn't fit. That'll get us through season one by the time the show comes back in February. Um, And then we'll probably, you know, we'll maybe think about tackling season two over next hiatus. But we'll definitely get through the end of the first season before season four starts back up again. Yes, indeed. All right. See you next time.